Moknev is an Irish word encompassing reflection, contemplation, meditation and thought. Moknev 100 is an invitation from the President of Ireland, Michael D. Higgins, for us all to join him in reflecting on those pivotal events of 100 years ago on this island and further afield, their causes, their consequences and the influence they might still have on our world today. History can be a contested and emotive subject. It is often viewed very differently depending on one's nationality, tradition or background. History can be selectively recalled, forgotten or ignored and has so often been used as a means of justifying contemporary action or inaction. A central motivation of the President in bringing us this series is to provide a space where through a fuller, more inclusive understanding of our shared past, we might acknowledge its complexity and contradictions and perhaps free ourselves from its capacity to inhibit our consideration of options for a better shared future. In the opening event of this series in December 2020, we considered the nature of commem commemoration itself and how through the engagement of an inclusive ethical remembering, we might become open to the perspectives of others. In this second seminar, we examine the nature of empire a century ago. The great empires of Europe were in flux following the First World War and change was sweeping the continent. We examine how empires reacted to these changes and look specifically to the Irish experience, mounting resistance to British rule, how the British establishment reacted and implications for unionists, republicans and for those who were simply getting on with their lives in those troubled years. We're coming to you from the State Dining Room at Orus and Uthron, the home of every Irish president since 1938, and appropriately for today's reflections, until 1922, the home of the British Empire's highest ranking representative in Ireland, the Lord Lieutenant. The president will start today's proceedings with a short introduction. I will then introduce each of the speakers, and the president will follow with his own reflections. And we will then conclude with a discussion with the panel. I now invite the President of Ireland, Michael D. Higgins, to introduce today's series of reflections. We are currently engaged in a decade of commemorations, which has allowed us as a nation to revisit and re-engage with those seminal events of a century ago that were to have such a profound effect on the societies and jurisdictions that emerged on this island and on our relationships with each other and with our neighbours. Our commemorative journey to date has allowed us to re-familiarise ourselves with and think afresh about key historic moments, such as the 1913 lockout, the First World War, the Spanish flu pandemic, the 1918 election, and the First Oil. New scholarship and perhaps further reflection with the passage of time has given us an opportunity to hear the history of those who may have been excluded from previous tellings, providing us perhaps with a fuller, more informed, more empathetic understanding. Machnev 100 is an initiative I have undertaken as Uchtron Aheren to build on this previous work and specifically to allow for reflections on the wider context of, for example, the War of Independence, Civil War and Partition. I have invited leading scholars with diverse perspectives to share their insights on the context and events of that formative period of a century ago and on the nature of the act of commemoration itself. 
My motivation in convening Machnov 100 is not for us to arrive at a singular unifying narrative of the past to which we must all subscribe, but rather to acknowledge that differing informed perspectives on the past do and can coexist. Machnov 100 can be, I hope, a welcoming, inclusive forum for listening, for learning and for reflecting. My hope is that Machnev 100 will contribute to an inclusive commemoration, one that allows for uncomfortable truths to be acknowledged, one that might free us from the traps of remembered grievances and bitterness, and one that through the sharing of a deeper understanding might assist us in our reconciliation with the past and with each other. May I thank Dr John Bowman, historian and broadcaster, for agreeing to chair these seminars, I could think of no one more suited to the task. Our inaugural seminar was held in December 2020 and examined the nature of commemoration itself in the context of today and of the national and global events of a century ago. Speakers included Professors Kieran Benson, Anne Dolan, Michael Laffin and Joep Learson. And together with them we set out our stall of what we are hoping for from this series. We have arrived at a point in our commemorative programme now, where we are obliged to confront, acknowledge and come to terms with some of the most contested aspects of the independence struggle, including a consideration of the forms and sources of violence that emerged. This is not an easy task, nor is it a simple story. Our task requires an open-minded and inclusive reflection if we are to derive an understanding of how and why the multiple divisions within Ireland emerged in the way that they did, how they manifested themselves and the strategies that were used to further their objectives. It requires, furthermore, an understanding of context, acknowledging the growing insecurity about the future of the British Empire in 1920, which resulted in an increasingly hostile, aggressive and violent response to civil unrest in Ireland, as well as other colonised nations. Today we shall hear a number of considered papers from a range of eminent scholars in the field of Irish history, commencing with Professor John Horne of Trinity College Dublin, who will provide an overview of the international order and consideration of the fall of European empires, and in particular the status and power of the British Empire, circa 1920. There will then follow four further reflections. Dr Neve Gallagher from the University of Cambridge will give particular attention to the impact of World War I and its after-effects on Irish and British society, paying regard to changed attitudes to death, violence, trauma, authority and health. She will also consider the Irish abroad and minorities in both North and South of Ireland in relation to partition. Professor Eunan O'Halpin of Trinity College Dublin will examine the crisis of empire, exploring the roots of the paradox that throughout the 20th century Irish independence has always been seen not as an existential threat but merely a tiresome second-order problem for Britain in international affairs. Professor Alvin Jackson from the University of Edinburgh will give particular attention to the position of Ulster and of Ulster Unionism in the debate on empire, identities and power, with the establishment of Northern Ireland as an outcome of such debate. 
Dr. Marie Coleman from Queen's University, Belfast, will examine how the war played out in the lives of individuals affected by the conflict and its aftermath, the motivation of those who took arms, the experience of the Protestant minority in the South, and the resonance of partition and the border. Finally, I will offer some thoughts on the relationship between empire and violence, including how versions of the other may have served as sources of violence. I hope that you'll find today's seminar interesting, thought-provoking, and even inspiring. Falcher Ovilyuk, thank you for being with us at Mochnev. Thank you, President. Our keynote speaker is John Horne, Emeritus Fellow and former Professor of Modern European History at Trinity College Dublin. He's the author and editor of a number of books and over 100 chapters and articles, many relating to the Great War, and including a companion to World War I, editor of Our War, Ireland and the Great War, and editor with Edward Madigan of Towards Commemoration, Ireland in War and Revolution, 1912 to 1923. His paper in Moknov is entitled Ireland at the Crossroad, 1920-21, Nation, Empire, Partition. John Horne. A Uktaron, Agus Akorja. Thank you, President Higgins, for inviting me to address this second session of Moknov 100 on the events of a century ago. You asked me to put them in a wider context. It's no easy task. Nothing less was at stake in 1920-1921 than Ireland's sovereignty, its contested future, its fractured territory, and the outcome of a war, a crossroad that still shapes our lives today. Yet it was indeed part of a wider context, a world crisis, and reflecting on this may help us to think about our national history. However, this is not history for history's sake. You also ask us to think about ethical commemoration. And I take this seriously, and shall do so at the end. But first, and bearing that in mind, let me reflect on Ireland's crossroad in terms of nation, empire, and partition, through all of which runs the theme of violence. Firstly, the nation. Ireland, a century ago, we know, was embroiled in a war fought in the name of Irish sovereignty by nationalists and opposed not just by the British but by those in Ireland who wished to preserve the Union. Put thus, it has the ring of inevitability. That comes from what went before, the Home Rule Crisis, the Great War, Easter 1916, the rise of Sinn Féin, and from what came after, including the eventual Republic. Also, nationality has since then become the basis of statehood and citizenship worldwide. In 1948, the UN declared it a human right. So it seems to me too vital to break this teleology, these logics of inevitability, and to recall just how fluid relations between nation, state, and indeed empire were in the era of the First World War, 1912 to 1923, and also how diverse the sources of sovereignty were, by which I mean political authority. Colonial empires were at their peak, the British the largest. 
dynastic empires, Habsburg, Romanov, Ottoman, which had ruled Eastern Europe, Russia, and the Middle East for centuries, only collapsed during the war, leaving multiple nationalities and new nation states. And nationality did not always imply statehood. Nations might exist inside a state or an empire. If a nation became a state, who belonged to it? How did it assert its sovereignty? Ireland before 1914 was a laboratory of such ideas. Regarding the state, physical force for full independence vied with a legislated path to home rule. As for the nation, Thomas Davis imagined it in the 1840s open to, quote, the stranger within our gates as to the Irishman of a hundred generations. Later, there were more overtly cultural views to which the Anglo-Irish, like Davis, contributed. Cultural nationalism mapped onto home rule politics, even if a new generation urged full independence, Roy Foster's vivid faces. In Ulster, mobilization against home rule honed an opposed and also cultural sense of nationality, of Britishness, in defense of the Union. All this shaped plans ranging from Home Rule in 1914 to the Irish Convention of 1917, from the Government of Ireland Act 1920 with its two parliaments, North and South, plus federal elements, to the Free State's limited sovereignty. But such solutions were not just Irish. They also abounded elsewhere in the world, including in Austria-Hungary, Arthur Griffith's model for a joint Anglo-Irish monarchy, and, of course, in Britain's settler dominions. However, in the second half of the First World War, Irish nationalists radically redefined the relations of nation, state, and sovereignty. Now, we can find purely Irish reasons for this, which is how it's usually seen. But I want to suggest that it was also part of the world crisis that I mentioned at the beginning. For the Great War was above all an existential war. It mobilized whole peoples, but at the cost of huge sacrifice. With German defeat, the fall of Europe's empires, the Russian Revolution, and colonial revolt, it galvanized the issue of sovereignty. Who ruled? By what authority? To what end? What was the role of the people in politics? U.S. President Woodrow Wilson caught this zeitgeist with his idea of self-determination. Briefly, he was a secular messiah. Sean T. O'Kelly famously went to Wilson in Paris in 1919 with the first Doyle's message to the free nations of the world. This summoned other sovereign nations to support, quote, the Irish Republic by recognizing Ireland's national status and her right to its vindication at the Paris Peace Congress. This case was not dismissed as that of a colony, as happened to those of India and Egypt and others, but because the Allies saw Ireland as a matter of internal British sovereignty. Ireland was thus caught up in the Wilsonian moment of 1919 
despite Wilson ignoring Ireland. But while the Allies sought to build a European order with the new nation-states and through the League of Nations, Ireland was initially barred from this. It was ironic. There was something deeply European, both in Ireland's claim to be part of this new order and in the form it took at home. For the first Doyle acted as a classic constituent assembly in the tradition of the French Revolution, while also invoking the nation proclaimed by insurrection in 1916. And remarkably, it also forged an underground state in resistance to the British. This was national sovereignty in action. Could it have been pursued non-violently, as Gandhia tried in India at the same time? This we shall never know. That such a zero-sum clash over sovereignty, Irish versus British, led to war in Ireland is not surprising. But neither was it uniquely Irish. I have argued elsewhere that a greater war prolonged something of the violence of the Great War until around 1923. The Allies tried to make a Europe of nation-states, but they did so in a world still in flames. Their writ was limited by wars, national revolutions, counter-revolutions, and the world threat of Bolshevism. For example, the Poland which they decreed ended up twice as big after wars with Lithuania, Ukraine, and communist Russia. Ireland's war of independence and civil war were, I would submit, part of this greater war. A century ago, Ireland shared a specific European context. Since the loyalties and identities of ordinary people were at stake in these border, national, and revolutionary wars in Europe, and since the combatants included militias and paramilitaries, civilians tended to be both subjects and actors of violence. We could draw a grim diagram of mutual dehumanization. One side might stigmatize the foe as collaborators or informers, the other as rebels, terrorists, or Bolsheviks, feeding a spiral of repressive or dissuasive brutality. When Major Bernard Montgomery, the future victor of El Alamein, who had Donegal roots, recalled that in battling the IRA in Cork in early 1921, quote, it never bothered me how many houses were burned, I regarded all civilians as shinners, that is, Sinn Feiners. He was voicing a sentiment heard from Silesia to Latvia, the Ruhr to Budapest. Yet this does not mean that violence was the same on both sides in Ireland, let alone everywhere else. The violence varied in nature and intensity, which brings me to my second theme, empire. One way to understand the War of Independence is as a colonial conflict. This was often how it was portrayed by Republicans at the time. Yet this is perhaps not self-evident, if only because the colonial was so multi-layered in Ireland and its meaning varied so much. The Union, after all, was the status quo of the British state itself. That made the first Doyle, let alone the IRA's guerrilla war, a head-on challenge unlike any other colonial war. The Great War, the Sinn Féin challenge, and a Europe of nation-states meant that even Lloyd George's conservative-dominated coalition 
now took some Irish devolution to be inevitable. The die-hard unionist Walter Long told Cabinet as much in 1919, referring to the new European order. Ireland might, it was now accepted, have autonomy within the UK, but the price, signalled by the pre-war home rule crisis, was the exclusion of Ulster unionists, with their claim to be a distinct people. On this reckoning, nation and sovereignty, not empire, drove the Anglo-Irish war. And yet, in other, often paradoxical ways, the language and realities of empire enveloped the conflict. The insurgents saw themselves as battling not just Britain, but its global imperialism. In this, they reflected back Britain's own self-image of an imperial mobilization for the Great War. They drew on the legacy of those like James Connolly, who put Ireland firmly in the camp of India or Egypt when condemning British repression. This view was reinforced by events like the Amritsar massacre in India or the nationalist revolt of Saad Zaglul in Egypt, both in 1919. As Art O'Brien, president of the Sinn Féin Association of Great Britain, remarked after Terence McSweeney's hunger strike in 1920, from the Atlantic to the Indian Ocean, it's the same combat against the same enemy. Today, we're the avant-garde, but it isn't just for Ireland that the Lord Mayor has died. It's so that the whole British Empire is destroyed. As for the British, they faced what some at the time saw as a crisis of empire. Historians debate the point. Did the British Empire reach its apex in 1919-1920 as it absorbed ex-German colonies and the former Ottoman Middle East? Or did protests in India, Egypt, Palestine and Ireland signal, as Art O'Brien hoped, the beginning of the end? I think both are true. It would take another world war to bring decolonization. But from 1919 to 1923, imperial overreach amid post-war retrenchment prompted a crisis of which Ireland was part. In mid-1920, the chief of the imperial general staff, Sir Henry Wilson, feared, I quote, the loss of Ireland to begin with, the loss of the empire in the second place, and the loss of England itself to finish up with. A Southern Unionist, he was a Longford man, killed by two IRA gunmen in 1922, he saw through the glass darkly. But the sentiment typified British conservatism more generally. Colonialism shaped British responses in other ways. Reactions to the famine 70 years earlier exposed a double standard in behavior imbued with the racial othering which characterized rule in the non-settler colonies. Now, to see Sinn Féiners and by extension the Irish as barbaric, even Bolshevik, justified a use of force by the regular army and above all by the, IR, uh, by the RIC auxiliaries that would not have been tolerated in Britain despite a wave of social unrest in the post-war years. It indeed echoed the violence used in India and Egypt. Yet, Many in Britain did not see the Irish like this. The 1920s were not the 1840s. Much had changed, including reforms in Ireland, on the land, in education and welfare. Plans for home rule were proof of this. 
Ironically, home rule also suggested empire, but a quite different one, the self-governing dominion. It was a model enhanced by the dominion's role in the war, especially Canada and Australia, and their independent status at the Paris Peace Conference. These different threads of empire were woven into the ending of the war. By mid-1921, there was deadlock. Militarily, the IRA could not win but the British had lost the battle for legitimacy. The price of enforcing rule in nationalist Ireland was a revolt by liberal opinion at home. This remained convinced that Britain had fought the Great War for liberal values, including the rights of small nations. It accused the Crown forces in Ireland of Prussianism, that's to say of committing atrocities, burning Balbriggan or Cork, like those the Germans committed in Belgium in 1914. Sir Neville Macready, Commander-in-Chief, advised Lloyd George to negotiate or fight a different war. Will the Cabinet begin to howl when they hear of a shooting a hundred men in one week, he asked. It was, I think, that tipping point of counterinsurgency. In the 1950s, for the British in Kenya, the French in Algeria, with torture, the separation of women and children from men, mass executions, it was when the violence spun out of control. In Ireland, this did not happen. Following King George V's appeal on opening the new Northern Ireland Parliament came the truce in July 1921. I don't mean to downplay the violence that did occur, but maybe the fact that Irish nationalists fought a state to which they also talked distinguished the war from bloodier inter-ethnic conflicts in Eastern Europe where the imperial state had precisely collapsed. Deaths in the Anglo-Irish War, as Eunan O'Halpin and Dahio Caroin have shown, were very low by comparison. Moreover, if the war was less violent than some later wars of decolonization, perhaps it foreshadowed those later wars in that the colonial power ultimately had a limited stake, while the rebels used the twin-track Irish model, political and military, talking while also fighting. Yet the tool used in the Anglo-Irish Treaty of January 1922 to square the circle over sovereignty and give a peaceful path to full independence, the freedom to achieve freedom, was dominion status. Partition was the precondition, civil war the price. Partition, my last theme, puts Ulster at the heart of Ireland's crossroad. We can see partition, that's to say the segregation of religious and ethnic groups by dividing territories, as one more tool of empire. It had been tried before 1914 in India with Lord Curzon's failed attempt to partition Bengal, as it would be in the new colony in Palestine between the wars. Yet we can also see it in the European context that I began with, in terms of the contradictions of nationalism. For the Allies at the peace conference wrestled with overlapping ethnic and religious identities as they tried to reconcile frontiers with peoples. Many new nation states had other national elements within while claiming nationals of their own in neighboring states. Nation and minority were inextricably linked. Indeed, minority as a political term dates from this period. And the relationship was often framed in terms of disloyalty and irredentism.
This mattered less for a civic pluralist idea of nationality, as espoused by Woodrow Wilson. But with the singular ethno-nationalism that so often prevailed in the new Europe, as later in the post-colonial world, minority protection was vital. Minority rights were stitched into the new state constitutions. That of Poland, for example, guaranteed the Jewish Sabbath, and their protection concerned the League of Nations. The two islands created in 1920-21 faced this question, albeit in unequal measure. In the South, during the War of Independence, the Protestant population fell by a third. Reasons for emigration varied, economic, cultural, intimidation, alleged collaboration, but it occurred on a patchy basis. The IRA was not sectarian as such, and Protestants were a minority of those killed, if disproportionately so. Any tendency to stigmatize a minority by its religion or old loyalties was local, limited, and not endorsed by the new state, which is not to say that Protestants always felt at ease in the post-war South. In Northern Ireland, however, the failure of the Union to provide a one-state solution for both islands threatened Unionists with minority status in the event of an all-island republic. The answer was to reconfigure the Union in Ireland as a territorial enclave. While the Ulster Covenant of 1912 had shown the ability of Unionists to defend equal citizenship in the United Kingdom, the logic of events since 1916 pushed them towards a devolved state in order to do so. It realigned state, nation and sovereignty in opposition to Sinn Féin. Catholics and nationalists caught in this enclave became, in the modern sense, a minority. Tensions going back to the colonization and subsequent industrialization of Ulster were brutally redefined a century ago in ways that made Northern Ireland more akin to Central and Eastern Europe. Timothy Wilson has shown this in his comparison with Silesia, where Germans and Poles fought a bitter ethnic war in 1919-21. to Shipyard expulsions in Belfast in July 1920 and the pogroms of 1920-1922 to used violence to corral and redefine the living space of a minority that was not leaving. This was less guerrilla war than intercommunal conflict in the form of local siege. Battles in Belfast even reminded some of the Western Front. Only the victims were mainly civilians. The irony is that a form of home rule enabled Northern Unionists to invest their own identity as a distinct people in a partly autonomous state. The cost was institutionalized discrimination against a supposedly disloyal minority. So much is commonplace. Less commonly acknowledged are the implications for the United Kingdom as a whole as it adjusted to partition. For it's a further irony that the UK which had played a key role in creating the new European order, including its minorities' protections, acquired its own minority in Northern Ireland. But because Ireland had been treated in Paris as a purely UK matter, the Northern minority remained unrecognised as such and outside the remit of the League of Nations, despite the Free State joining the League and the new European order. For that, and for many other reasons, this consequence of partition remained frozen for nearly 50 years. Oftoron, 
I have tried to highlight the historical significance of Ireland's crossroad a century ago by seeing it in the contexts of Europe, the British Empire, and a world crisis down to 1923. I'm conscious of what I've left out. For example, the class conflict and socialism of these years, epitomized by revolutionary Russia, gave a strong undertow to events in Ireland. But there remains your challenge of commemoration. This, as you explored in the first seminar, means recovery of actors, the vivid faces, of victims of the unheard. Yet the point of commemoration is also to interrogate the past for the sake of the present, and of ethical commemoration to do so not for pious or political reasons, but in order to be critical and self-critical, in a word, pluralist. I hope the frameworks I've suggested help in this endeavor. For me, commemoration includes using hindsight while always understanding the past in its own terms, but using hindsight to ask what is important about that past now. Since the link of past to present changes all the time, answers are provisional and subjective. But it's in this spirit that I'd like to end with four reflections drawn from the present as I see it now. First, sovereignty is relative, not absolute, a lesson sovereigns themselves have learned throughout history. It is a fiction, but one by which societies order their politics at home and abroad. It can be declined in degrees and practiced at different levels. The only test is effectiveness, which includes being accepted. The events of a century ago were a hard, divisive lesson. But the Ireland, which found a place briefly as a British dominion and later in Europe, learned it to good effect. Now I find it striking to see the United Kingdom, whose empire dissolved mid-century, whose re-engagement with Europe has now ended, and whose own union is under strain, wrestle with this same issue. Second, the nation too is something we construct, though it is rooted in lived reality. It's also the main entity in which sovereignty has been vested over the past century, for good or evil. Often it has been for evil, as when a unitary or majority identity defines the nation and so the state to the cost of its minorities. With the rise of fascism and communism, this led to irredentist wars, the redrawing of borders and the destruction of minorities, contributing to the Second World War. A Europe premised on civic pluralist politics had to be painfully rebuilt. Now, Ireland clearly suffered nothing like this, but was it totally exempt? The South fashioned a robust democracy, no mean feat for a new state. But a conservative social consensus left a heavy burden, one that also weighed on relations with the North. In the North, however, the Irish version of the interwar minority question did not merely persist. It took a 30-year conflict before equal nationalities, a layering of sovereignty, civic rights, and an end to Southern irredentism addressed this legacy of partition. Third, the nature of nationalism should not obscure the legacy of imperialism. Complex, many-sided, how could it be otherwise? With a British empire that ruled nearly a quarter of humankind in 1920, this provided a way forward in Ireland in the dominion form that I've described. And that really is worthy of reflection. 
but it also resulted in the violence visited by the Crown forces on Irish civilians and the Irish landscape. Cork City or Balbriggan, destroyed in late 1920, ought perhaps, in Anglo-Irish relations a century later, to be sites of memory, to use the concept of historian Pierre Nora, or even of reconciliation. After all, they were decried in Britain at the time. But are they? If Ireland was Britain's oldest colony, the War of Independence was its first war of decolonization since the loss of America. It was part of a process, including Palestine, India, Malaya, Kenya, that lasted till the 1960s. And I wonder if the United Kingdom has yet come to terms with this side of empire, its violence, and in particular, that of decolonization. Finally, violence as such. The legitimacy of using violence to resist empire or occupation and assert sovereignty or defend a nation is an eternal debate. But violence always comes at a cost. In the era of the Great War, violence and politics were more closely linked than ever. Along with enrollment in legal mass armies, civilians took up arms as paramilitaries for and against the state, as guerrillas and so on. The Irish rebels were examples of this trend. But so too were the British irregulars and unionist paramilitaries in the north. The brutal shortcut by which the gunman on any side presumes to incarnate the state or the national will cast a long shadow in Ireland as elsewhere. Getting rid of armed paramilitaries, many of whose organisations trace their descent from the Great War era, has played out differently south and north. But a hundred years on, it seems seems to have worked. Not the least important legacy of events a century ago may be our hard-won knowledge in both Ireland and the United Kingdom that peace, like sovereignty and the nation, is a process. Thank you, and I look forward to your comments. And responding now to Professor Horne's paper, for historians, Dr. Neve Gallagher is from County Armagh. Her first book, Ireland and the Great War, A Social and Political History, is a revisionist history of the Irish in the First World War. And it was the first work of Irish history to win the Royal Historical Society's Whitfield Prize, awarded to a new author for the best work in either British or Irish history. She is a lecturer in modern British and Irish history at Cambridge and a fellow of St. Catherine's College in Cambridge, from where she now joins us. Thank you, John. Anukturan, colleagues, thank you, President Higgins, for inviting me to respond to Professor Horne's paper on the wider dimensions of the centenary we are now living through. I have found, President, your own reflections on ethical remembering, Richard Kearney's hospitality of narratives, and unchallenging what you have called a feigned amnesia around the uncomfortable aspects of the shared history between Britain and Ireland to be very useful when contemplating the themes of sovereignty, nation and empire. Professor Horne reminds us that sources of sovereignty were not fixed in the period leading up to and after the First World War. He has reminded us that the world of 1920 to 21 looked very different to that of today. We are often accustomed to remembering only one empire when we think of Ireland in these years, but this was a world made up of empires. The British Empire was joined by the Ottoman, Austro-Hungarian, Russian and German empires, whose territories extended across continents 
and incorporated a diverse array of peoples, ethnicities and nationalities. This is to say nothing of the East, where the Qing dynasty of China had recently ruled large parts of the Asian continent and the Empire of Japan continued to exercise rule across sections of what we would today call Russia, China and the Pacific. Some of these entities, such as the Ottoman Empire, had existed for over 600 years. We often anticipate the demise of empire when we think about Ireland 100 years ago. But we have forgotten just how powerful these entities seemed to the people who lived in their midst. And that many Irish and British people of all backgrounds came up with solutions to the question of our self-government in an imperial rather than a post-imperial world. Professor Horn has discussed how physical force nationalists vied with home rulers over the question of Irish sovereignty and how resistance in Ulster cultivated an opposed sense of nationality. But there are complexities within these binaries, a hospitality of narratives that are often neglected when we think of nationalists and unionists before and after 1914. To give three examples. In 1904, Arthur Griffith, the founder of Sinn Féin, devoted himself to thinking about what the future of Ireland might look like. He published a series of articles, later included in the second edition of his book, The Resurrection of Hungary, in which he dwelt on what he considered to be the historic fallacies of British governance in Ireland. He argued that the late 18th century Prime Minister, William Pitt, had missed an historic opportunity to create an Anglo-Hibernian empire, modelled on what would later become the Austro-Hungarian Empire under the 1867 Ausgleich. Griffith's analysis of empire was not one of subjugation or repression, but was instead about the spread of power relations across Europe, in which he felt that Ireland could have been co-equal with Britain in managing its overseas empire. His vision for the future, two kingdoms of Ireland and Britain modelled on the Austro-Hungarian example, was an imaginative use of empire to solve the question of Irish sovereignty. These ideas were the very opposite of what James Connolly proposed in his 1910 work, Labour and Irish History. Connolly wrote that, and I quote, the progress of the fight for national liberty of any subject nation must keep pace with the struggle for liberty of the most subject class in that nation. For Connolly, democracy and the essential sovereignty of the people lay within the working classes, not within the middle and upper classes, who had been corrupted by capitalism and exploited the workers for their own gain. For Connolly, these were the true imperialists. No question of sovereignty could be solved by territory alone when the imperialist class continued to exploit the sovereign, the working classes of the world who had no territorial boundaries. Both of these nationalists used ideas of empire and imperialism in different ways to explore the question of Irish sovereignty. And the same is true for those who resisted Irish self-government. Leopold Amory, a renowned academic, journalist, imperialist, and British conservative politician, wrote an extended essay in 1912 called Home Rule and the Colonial Analogy to make the unionist case against self-government. Nationalists such as John Redmond, the leader of the Home Rule Party, and Erskine Childers 
a one-time imperialist turned Republican, had repeatedly referred to some colonies within the British Empire where self-government had been a success. Amory argued that their comparisons were, and I quote, based on a series of confusions due to the vagueness of the phrase home rule and to the general ignorance of the origin and real nature of the British colonial system. Quite simply, Amory showed that governance within the British Empire took a wide variety of forms. There was no easy parallel between Ireland's case and the colonial model. Canada was practically a sovereign nation state, whereas South Africa had little more than county council powers. The Isle of Man continued to be operated on the age-old principle of ascendancy that resembled the much hated law in Ireland, Poynings Act, passed in 1494, repealed only in 1782. After demonstrating that there was no single model of colonial legislation, and that nationalists who dwelt in the colonial analogy were fudging a complicated reality, Amory went on to dismiss the much touted unionist case against Home Rule, that Ireland was richer because of the 1801 Act of Union. He argued that the Union had never really united all of Ireland with Britain. It had privileged some parts and exploited others. In contrast to many nationalists, however, his solution was not one of separation, but of further integration by extensive social and economic improvement. For Griffith, Connolly and Amory, their respective visions for Ireland involved, resisted and complicated empire in ways we are not accustomed to remembering. In our rush to explain our past in simple binaries, such as imperialist versus a colonized, physical force versus home rulers, nationalists versus unionists. We have done our own shared history a disservice. We have simplified complicated realities into easily accessible narratives about our past. This is especially true when we think about the First World War. In recent years, Ireland has engaged in much soul searching about this contested conflict and the efforts of the president and former president McAleese have been of tremendous significance in bringing the Irish who served in that war back into the forefront of our national memory. It is difficult for us today to understand what that conflict was about. It has none of the certainty that comes with the Second World War where moral judgments on good versus evil are much easier for us to make today. But participation in the First World War made sense to millions of Irish people at the time. We are used to hearing the well-worn view that many nationalists signed up to secure home rule while unionists did so to prevent it. But the reality is less stark than this simple binary suggests. Just to take a few examples, Francis Ledwidge, the Catholic poet, famously joined up after a spat with his girlfriend. Charles Brett, a Northern Presbyterian, couldn't really work out his motivation until he saw the hundreds of dead civilians washed up in Cove in Cork following the sinking of the RMS Lusitania by a German U-boat on the 7th of May 1915. 
The Home Rule MP, Thomas Kettle, was in Belgium when the conflict began, and the atrocities he witnessed by the invading German army encouraged him to join the Allies as an Irish soldier in the Army of Europe. These men undoubtedly had other motivations as well, which differed from the incentives that enabled them to endure the war. And a similar variety can be seen in the millions of Irish women who rendered support on various home fronts and in field hospitals near the front lines. But all of this was framed by a general belief that we can find difficult to understand today, that the Allies were believed to have been fundamentally in the right while Germany was in the wrong. And Professor Horn has shown how this discourse of Prussianism, that Britain had resorted to barbaric methods, even endured in the War of Independence. He has also reminded us that the war didn't end in 1918, and has suggested that it was part of a greater crisis that lasted until 1923. I would add that other chronologies are equally important. Grief and disability had timelines which do not map onto the dates we commonly recall when thinking about centenaries. In 1915, the former Trinity College Dublin student, Captain David Campbell, lost his friend Levis at Gallipoli. Campbell wrote his memoirs in the 1970s, and he said that, and I quote, I remember him every armistice day and mourn his loss afresh. Two weeks ago, I read a story in The Guardian of the second eldest person in France who had just celebrated her 117th birthday. Hard believe. Sister Andre, born in 1904, now in a care home in the south of France, had miraculously survived Covid. When asked why she felt she had lived so long, she answered, and I quote, no idea. I've had plenty of unhappiness in life, and during the 1914 to 18 war, when I was a child, I suffered like everyone else. For Sister Andre, that conflict was still painfully present in her recollections. For David Campbell and the tens of thousands of Irish families who also lost loved ones in that war, the conflict didn't end in 1918 or in 1923, but had its own timeline. For all of us who have experienced grief and the present moment deserves its own reflection. A common humanity that transcends time and space can assist us when relating to historical actors, even if our ability to understand the events that they had participated in has changed. The binary of nationalist versus unionist enlistment in the war, the problems of marking start and end points when thinking about centenaries, is especially clear in the years that followed the War of Independence. Remembrance Day ceremonies across Ireland, which began in 1919, accelerated after 1923, when the Civil War finally came to a close. They often demonstrated a sense of solidarity between Protestants and Catholics, which had been fostered in various capacities during the war. The First World War may have honed the politics of nationalism and unionism, but other forms of understanding 
based on a shared sense of loss, participation, and for a time, righteousness, inspired other forms of inclusivity that continued to endure throughout much of the 1920s and even into the 1930s, despite changing, changing domestic political realities. I wish to briefly say a few words on some other aspects of empire, which we are not accustomed to remembering. The historian Cormac O'Grada has reminded us that in the devastating famine of the 1840s, emigration was a vital lifeline that allowed many Irish people to survive. It enabled them to gain employment, freed up resources in Ireland so that those who stayed could manage, and helped successive generations build futures that were simply not possible in Ireland. Australia, Canada, New Zealand, Britain, parts of Africa, and of course the United States, all became homes for Irish people during the 17th, 18th, 19th, 20th, and now 21st centuries, all of which had been a part of the British Empire at one time. The feigned amnesia that the empire was somehow divorced from the dominions and territories through which millions of Irish people actively chose to make their home is an important reality that coexisted with the more negative narratives of empire that we more commonly recall. Professor Horn has reminded us of the hard power and abuses wielded by imperial administrators. But if we look at the processes by which hard power was exercised, it continued to have a history in independent Ireland. Civil society, the state, and religious institutions wielded forms of repression that victims would find difficult to distinguish from the imperial power exercised within the British Empire. Penalties enacted on single mothers, separated families, those suffering mental disorders, and people of different sexualities were just as severe as some of the repression meted out to populations that were marginalized, incarcerated, and who suffered civil disabilities within the empire. Ireland was not unique in marginalizing groups of citizens and interwar Europe was hardly a beacon of popular liberalism. But some penalties did endure in Ireland longer than elsewhere. If we are to really adopt a hospitality of narratives about our past, we need to think harder about the processes behind nationhood, power and empire, and to recognise that after 1921, sovereignty was not granted to all of our citizens in an equal share. Briefly, I want to say a few words about partition, which created new majorities and minorities across the island. The creation of two states came with a corresponding sense of statelessness Southern Protestants, Northern Catholics and Republicans, both North and South. In Northern Ireland, two hegemonic narratives of nationality and sovereignty are deeply intertwined with modern political identities. Yet here too, history can show us that a multiplicity of experiences existed which tempered these dominant narratives. My hope is that the president's call to ethically, re ethically remember the past might inspire a capacity for reflectivity 
that can assist and complicate rather than threaten and simplify different understandings of nationhood and sovereignty. Thank you, President Higgins, for giving me the opportunity to reflect on Professor Horn's paper today, and I do hope my response provokes some thought. Thank you, uh, Niamh uh, Gallagher, joining us from Cambridge. Eunan uh, O'Halpin is our next speaker. He studied history at UCD and Cambridge. He taught history in DCU in the 80, 1980s and 90s, and since 2000 for a further 20 years at Trinity College, Dublin. His books include biographical studies of Sir Warren Fisher and of Kevin Barry, Defending Ireland, the Irish State and its Enemies since 1922, and more recently with Dahi O'Coroin, The Dead of the Irish Revolution, the first comprehensive account to record and analyse all deaths arising from the Irish Revolution between 1916 and 1921. Eunan O'Halpin joins us from his home in Dublin. Thank you, President Higgins, for inviting me to participate in this series of reflections on my colleague John Horne's very interesting document. In fact, in listening to John again, uh, things have occurred to me which may interpolate themselves and to leave also into what I say. I want to begin by saying a bit about the, the quote, the Irish nation and the challenge of ethical commemoration. In my view, nationalist Ireland was unified and to an extent radicalized as much by the conscription crisis of 1918 as by the rising two years earlier. Uh, and I, I would argue in the interim by politics and including the astonishing decision of the British authorities to release all those people uh, whom they hadn't uh, executed but had imprisoned. Um, I think we in, we in Ireland certainly should be careful that we in turn don't, don't now attempt as it were, to conscript everyone in the island into a single commemorative cohort. Uh, our island includes people, our shared island, I should say, uh, who see themselves both as Irish and as British, and people who see themselves simply as British, through and through. I, I think commemoration isn't legitimized simply by, by inclusiveness, by remembering Ulster's, as well as nationalist Ireland's, uh, Great War Dead, by belatedly discovering the role of women in the Irish Revolution, which has uh, very much been a, was a mark of, of the centenary of, of 1916. I think Richard Carney's rather cheerful nostrum of, quote, a hospitality of narratives is all very well. But we have to be careful because I think that some people don't want to be, as it were, included and see their commemorations and their memories and their issues as separate from our discourse. And just as we expect others, for example, to, to leave James McLean, the footballer, alone in his very well-grounded uh, decision not to wear the poppy around Armistice Day in Britain because of his background uh, 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 growing up in, in nationalist or Republican Derry. Uh, so we, in turn, should respect, I think, the, uh, that other people may simply not wish to be part of our uh, commemorative uh, uh, reflections, however uh, um, pluralist they, they seem to be. Uh, a few years ago, I was um, perhaps now looking back rather condescendingly and complacently, I commented on how I th how excellent I thought uh, the then Minister for Arts, Culture, Heritage of the Gaelic, uh, Heather Humphreys, uh, had managed the, the 2016 commemoration specifically uh, as as a, as a, as, a, as we know as a, as a border protestant woman uh, she i thought she had been terrific she'd been engaged she had she plainly and openly said she came from in a sense a different tradition to most of us but on the other hand she'd been she, she grew up in monaghan she'd been to school in coot hill in fact with some of my cousins in the, one of the few community schools that was open at the time 
And I thought this was all a very good thing. And afterwards, a man in the audience came up to me and he identified himself as, quote, a Donegal Protestant. And he said that he felt, and some in his community had felt very disturbed by the centenary. I was amazed. He was just, he said they were disturbed in particular by what I had praised, which was the, the idea of the defence forces coming to every school with a copy of the proclamation and a copy of the national flag. And he said also that, that Minister Humphreys, being in the role she, role she was in, could, quote, no longer speak for us. And I found that initially not, not offensive, but, but, but uh, it's sort of fair. Uh, Maybe think a bit about um, about the reality that that there may be people in this state, this glorious uh, sceptered isle, uh, or twenty six counties of us, uh, who don't actually particularly particularly in the border areas, who still look across the border, who still who still who they they too like many northern nationalists feel that partition has been cruel to them, and that's a hundred years after the event. So many years ago in Cambridge, I introduced a young woman. Uh, uh, the fiancé of, of a friend who, who said she was from such and such a place, which I knew was on the Donegal border. And I said, oh, which side is it on? This is at the height of the troubles. And she immediately said, oh, it's 300 yards into the Republic, worse luck. And I thought, how could she not wish to be in our glorious Republic in whatever it was, 1980 or 1981? So I think we have to be mindful that there's lots of lots of groups for whom partition in particular and commemoration linked to it remains more sensitive than we think because of the past and because of a, a future, if you like, into which minorities were placed in 1921-1922. And we also have to remember that until 1925 there was some hope, not only for 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 border uh, commu- for border communities in particular. Uh, identifying as nationalist or identifying as unionist, the, the lines would be withdrawn. And that would not have been anomalous, would not have been out of the way. On the contrary, the history of partitions of borders is one of, of, of not of permanence, but of, but of transience. I think also we, we've, we have to reflect, I'm not sure what we can do, about the nationalist experience in the newly created Northern Ireland, to quote Dermot Ferreter, where nationalist experience, quote, the tyranny of the special. And again, my own father's relatives uh, who, who, who stayed in the north who were wouldn't have by, by the time I met them in the 70s and 80s certainly not part of a republican narrative but their 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 recollections their childhoods is almost dominated by the intrusive nature uh, of security even in quiet times and by in particular by the by by the the specials not necessarily as beating them up but as being uh, of the other side and having the authority somehow to interrogate you no matter what you were doing. And I don't know how we deal with that. Uh, and in terms of the northern minority, again, in 1921 and 22, especially, many hundreds of them lost their homes, uh, 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 some, of, some of their livelihoods, and certainly scores. I mean, I don't have a precise number, but I would guess well over 200 died in sectarian attacks. Uh, and and some, some people have, were faced with a choice uh, again, my, my, my father's father and his new bride had to decide in the summer of 22, did they go south uh, or did they stay in the north? And most likely my grandfather would have been interned as his brother-in-law was interned for two years when he returned north at the beginning of 1923. And how many other Republicans left the north because of that, or nationalists, uh, because of oppression, because of the fear of arrest, or because it was such a, a hostile new environment, I don't know. And I do wonder whether, for example, had there been more John today again mentioned the emphasis of minority rights, which I think is extremely important in the Anglo-Irish negotiations and in the production of the 1922 treaty here. Uh, but it, had there been comparable protections 
uh, explicitly uh, for the minority in Northern Ireland, other than PR, which was then removed later in the 1920s, whether the North might have worked out differently. But I think the history of Europe uh, in the 20th century, again, as John alluded to, is no matter how grand uh, the provisions for protections for minorities and so on, he instances Poland, it doesn't necessarily remove uh, uh, or, or, or dispose of friction or dispose of the problem of people who identify fundamentally uh, as, a, as a group with something or some group, with some party or collection other than the state, which, which they've been, in a sense, drawn into by some uh, uh, former colonial power, powers pen. Um, the, 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 to move on, um, I, I, I do wonder how much we can ethically, ethically commemorate, that's the president's phrase, what we don't yet fully understand. And again, I'm a bit awkward about this. Uh, I, I've just finished a big study, as you know, uh, with Dahlia Corrine on the dead of the Irish Revolution, where I have, I have, we have a fairly good number of fatalities. And I say only a fatality is rising from 1916 to December 21. Um, and that's an elementary question, which I think has been more or less answered by us. I still have no idea how many people die as a result of Irish political violence from January 1922 to perhaps to the end of 1924. Uh, so the actual figures that actually are, are important. And we can't do a lot of that. We can't look at other questions. For example, the phenomenon, again, which John touched on in his paper of... of uh, of, if you like, non-Catholic migration uh, from from the from what become the twenty six counties at some point between nineteen eleven and nineteen twenty six, when the first census is held, and we're not ever going to be able to do that unless we uh, unless until unless and until we get the appropriate records. And the tragedy of that, in ethical terms, for this state, I would argue, is that uh, the state does possess. Um, very important collections of records relating to the 1926 record in particular, but also to, to the Land Commission that set up in 1923. And, and the, it's in those kind of kind of records that one will find the histories not of high politics or of who shot who or questions like that or how big a pension Tom Barry got or how many people you know were in the GPO uh, on Easter Tuesday or Easter Wednesday 1916, but how people people's lives were affected. Uh, as it were, ordinary people, the people uh, amongst whom and to some extent above whom and around whom uh, the Irish Revolution was fought out. And not only in terms of, of, of the impact of the impact of violence and the fear of violence and the impact of discrimination falling short of violence and the fear of discrimination and also the fear of the, re the return of, of old tensions around land, in particular rural Ireland, how, how that plays out in practice. Uh, and I do think, we, we, yes, we should commemorate, but we also have to explore. And I wouldn't like like it to be thought that the state has, has done a great deal in terms of the revolution, specifically in terms, terms of the Bureau of Military History, which has given us very important and problematic narratives uh, from, if you like, from the rebel side, uh, and especially in terms of the military service pensions archive, which is absolutely enormous. I, I initially... Uh, with other people was campaigning in, I think, 2006 for it to be released. I said, there are 17,000 files and we must see them. And of course, there are over 300,000 files and the number is growing. But these are enormously important, but they are only one part of the Irish Revolution. They are the activists and to some extent the activist dependents and so on. And they're very much from one side. And there are other, other sides and so on, which the state, this state, 
leaving aside what may still be available or, or should be available in Northern Ireland or Britain, sometimes embargoed, usually for administrative reasons, not for political reasons. But the big thing is this state has not really taken the measure I think it should have done uh, in terms of respecting commemoration precisely in relation uh, to the Land Commission and to the uh, uh, to the 1926 census and so on, which we will wait for now until uh, 2027, I guess, unless reasons can be thought of uh, to 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 uh, extend uh, our period of waiting rather rather longer. Um, I want to go back though to 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 having got that off my chest, as it were, uh, Mr. President, uh, to the to to the other question which was raised by former Taoiseach John Bruton at the time of the 1916 centenary. I was on a panel with him. I think John Bowman was there as well. And John Bruton spoke in some ways in a very downbeat way about the question and indeed the, eth the ethical appropriateness of commemorating the actual 1916 rising. And in effect, his argument was this wasn't, the danger wasn't that one would acknowledge the, the heroism of men and women who, you know, who defied an empire and so on, uh, in, the, in the near certainty that they would be defeated. And, of course, in a rather ambiguous alliance with gallant allies in Europe, who themselves, Germany, and leave Turkey out of it, and Austria-Hungary, but Germany had been a very brutal colonist, uh, the colonizer themselves in, in, in uh, Southwest Africa. But uh, John Bruton's arg argument was the danger of focusing so much on armed force. About, a rebellion inspired by a very small group a militant secrets group, really, within a, within a wider group, um, without any democratic mandates and so on, uh, was that it, it it downplayed two things. First of all, it downplayed the practical achievements uh, of the of the constitutional home rule home rule movement on, under John Redmond, which in a sense had culminated in the Government of Ireland Act of 1914, which we must remember had granted uh, 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 home rule. Uh, for, for for all of Ireland, obviously that was contested by Ulster, um, and but but he, he, John's argument was also that the danger was that this this discredited to some extent uh, uh, the, the 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 practical evolution of Irish uh, democratic politics since you could say since 1918. In other words, uh, that the focus on revolutionary violence was in danger all the time of valorizing violence against the pedestrian matter of getting the vote uh, and using the vote and using that as the way to take political decisions and to provide for means by which uh, a, a, an island, an Ireland, I beg your pardon, not an island, uh, would, would, be, would, be, would be governed uh, in the future. And I assert, John Bruton, as the president particularly knows, because he's a colleague of his in government, uh, it isn't wouldn't be alone in those views, uh, but he's perhaps the most uh, forthright uh, former national leader uh, to uh, to put them forward. And I think there was a challenge, which in some sense wasn't answered in in, in what John Bruton said at the time. But perhaps it is time now. I think it is it is notable that that our, our sort of uh, we move from 1916 uh, to the War of Independence. Uh, and we're going to move to the Civil War. We also have a look at, 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 at the violence, especially in Belfast after partition, sometimes as a separate subject, which I think is entirely wrong. But we don't really focus on, on uh, what, again, what John mentioned, first of all, on, on the practical achievements of the, of the revolutionary government in underground administration, in setting up 
a, a kind of bureaucracy which attempted to govern, begin to govern Ireland, which is very important. And secondly, we don't look look at, at the sheer demonstrable attachment uh, to, 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 to democratic forms uh, of making political choices, which, which, which became very clear uh, in 1922 and again in 1923, when remarkably within, what, three or four months of the Civil War, not so much ending as just kind of dribbling away, uh, we, had, we had a general election when, in effect, the anti-treaty side were allowed to participate. And that's extraordinary. And it is the narrative of Irish democracy, uh, we don't have to, uh, we can put on, wear our hair shirts about uh, uh, the shortcomings of Irish society and Irish legislation and uh, the place of the place of the church in, 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 in public policy. Although I think sometimes in the UK, uh, people don't, aren't familiar with their own constitution, which puts their church, as it were, their church, excuse me, uh, uh, right at the centre of power and uh, embodied in the monarch. But we, the, 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 this, this, the, 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 the enduring attachment of, of, of independent Ireland uh, to electoral politics is something which I don't think we should congratulate ourselves for, but I think we should as, as historians and as citizens of whatever country that we, we, we should note. And yet, can I, 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 I'm going to lose track of time, of course, because I've departed from my script, so I apologize. Can I make the point that this same valorizing of violence is very striking in, 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 other, in other countries? I mentioned I was in India in 2012, and I follow Indian politics vaguely, and I'm very interested particularly in Afghanistan, which used to be Indians, India, British India's problematic northern neighbor and is now Pakistan's, uh, if you like, problematic northern neighbor. Uh, but if you look at uh, the Indian English language media, which I, is the only thing I have access to, uh, it's extraordinary the emphasis they put on what they call their war of independence, of their martyrs and so on, from 1857 to 1947. And this has been uh, uh, increasingly has been the tone of, of the present Indian government is to emphasize physical force. Whereas anybody looking at India in the round from the outside would argue that India achieved its independence and, of course, its, its partition or partitions, because you had a part, two part partition in 1947 of India from what becomes Pakistan. But Pakistan itself was two different uh, physical entities about a thousand miles apart. And then you had another partition in 1971 when East Pakistan broke away and became Bangladesh. But you have you have yet the Indian narrative is one of how we won our, our freedom by force, whereas in, in, in the world sees in, in, in Indian and indeed Pakistani uh, independence as having been achieved by largely peaceful means. And President Higgins, in, in his own uh, discourses, and, and others have pointed the, to the brutality of imperial power, if you like, and the imperial abuse of power. Uh, against against not only in India but also he mentioned or John Horn mentioned in Kenya on, on, in some ways on a ferocious scale but this, the the headline story of Indian independence and of Pakistani independence should really be that by and large this was achieved through peaceful peaceful uh, constitutional politics notwithstanding savage colonial repression uh, and there were calamities at the actual moment of partition and there remain calamities in terms of intercommunal relations particularly between the six uh, between the muslims rather uh, versus the six and the hindus but india india got its got its independence i would argue largely by peaceful means but it chooses now to pretend it was part of, of it was on foot of an armed struggle well, President, I'm not sure how much more I, I need, 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 need to say, except to, we have seen uh, 
in Ireland, I think in recent years, uh, a, a younger generation of, of, of scholars, which isn't hard for me to say, uh, who have begun to try to look at the Irish Revolution in terms of the lives of ordinary people and so on. I think uh, Neve Gallagher's work, for example, uh, Fanula Walsh, uh, whose book on Irish Women of the Great War has just come out, uh, are, are trying to ask the questions, well, what about the ordinary people of the island of Ireland, how they, how they lived and so on? And I think that's really important because these are the people, uh, not only are they the people, but they're the people who, in the case of Irish women, at least, uh, at least come to vote from, 90, from, from 1918 onwards. Uh, uh, they're the people who, who, they're the mass of us, they're the ordinary people. And these have been too long excluded, whether it's from political studies or whether it's from wider social and cultural studies. And back to my point about uh, the Land Commission uh, and, and 1926 census, and perhaps there are some comparable records and comparable problems uh, in the north and in Britain. But we, we, without records, it's very hard to shift the focus away from a small, a small group of activists, whatever we think of them, uh, and however important they were at key times, and to get to, get to grips with the ordinary lives, if you like, of ordinary people in extraordinary times. Just a, a couple of more points I've, uh, I, I want to make in relation to partition. And again, as John has said, partition uh, what, it wasn't particular to Ireland. And of course, the shape of partition in Ireland was not something uh, that was, that was a, a done deal uh, until about, we could argue, until about 1914, perhaps even a bit later. And back to my point about the man from Donegal who... who uh, who I won't say upbraided, but 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 who, who contested what I'd said uh, at some seminar or other. Uh, a nine-county Ulster was a real possibility, at least for the people in Donegal and in Cavan and in Monaghan who identified uh, with unionism and so on. Um, uh, a four-county Ulster was certainly a possibility uh, uh, from a nationalist perspective, however unpalatable, uh, in, in 1914. So the six counties that we got, and the, the, re, the definition, the redefinition of Ulster as a six-county Ulster is a very late addition in some ways to, to Irish political discourse. It's not something that was there uh, from the 1880s, say. It's something which emerges, uh, I would argue, around the crisis over Home Rule and the, uh, the third Home Rule bill. Uh, so, so, and I, I have, we all have a myriad of examples of partitions which go wrong, which are revised, uh, which create difficulties, which which still live with us. I was in Hungary some years ago. Yeah. You, uh, Unan, can I, John, John, John Bowman here? Can I? You've raised a number of issues there that we will be discussing in the uh, exchange between all of us uh, presently. So, can I just ask you to stop there, and we'll visit some of those issues that you've just mentioned. Uh, in the in the debate, is that okay? Okay, so where do you want me? Where what do you want me to do? Just wait for the debate, and we'll we'll bring you the, some of those. Uh, we'll bring some of those questions you've just asked the, at this moment in the debate, which follows our next speaker, and then uh, Marie Coleman. We have two more speakers before we all before gather again for a roundtable debate. So thank you very much, Yunan, for for that and for all your provocative points there, which we, no doubt we'll be discussing. Our next speaker is um, a graduate of Oxford, Alvin Jackson. He taught at UCD, Boston College, and Queen's University, Belfast, before becoming Richard Lodge Professor of History at the University of Edinburgh. His books include Ireland, 1798 to 1998, War, Peace, and Beyond, and 
Judging Redmond and Carson, and he's editor of the Oxford Handbook of Modern Irish History. Alvin Jackson joins us from Edinburgh. Uh, thank you. Uchtaran, uh, uh, I'm grateful for the invitation to speak today, and I'm uh, honoured to be part uh, of this event. Can I begin perhaps with the theme of empire, since you've placed this at the heart of your concerns for our discussion, uh, and since Professor John Horn has highlighted uh, the issue in his eloquent introduction? Let me then move to consider partition, particularly in relation to unionism, since this has a relevance and a challenge in terms of the president's emphasis on ethical commemoration. And let me also attempt to follow John, if I can, in his European and his global approach to the history of Ireland uh, a century ago. As John has said, uh, there is indeed a distinction between the great dynastic empires of the early 20th century, such as those of the Habsburgs, and the contemporary colonial empires of, for example, the French uh, and the British. There are uh, also ways in which these categories overlap, however, and there are even senses in which there is an overlap between the concept of empire uh, and that of union. So, in pursuing the idea of empire and imperialism, let me first take an example which was much invoked uh, in the Home Rule era uh, and which has been uh, mentioned already by others. Austria, Hungary, the dual monarchy was the focus of a great deal of uh, earnest Irish nationalist as well as British liberal reflection, most famously by Arthur Griffith in his Resurrection of Hungary but also John Redmond and other home rulers in Ireland and Britain, including, for example, Gladstone, and the Scottish scholar of Central Europe, Robert Seaton Watson, all saw various forms of parallel or paradigm connecting the nationalities of the UK and those within Austria-Hungary itself. Some sustained this analysis after 1918, seeing applications and links between the UK and the successor states. These efforts to find an ideal in Central Europe were sometimes uh, highly unrealistic, but a careful comparison of the two, the UK and the dual monarchy, remains instructive, I think, as we all reflect upon the history of Ireland's relationships with union and empire uh, a century ago. So Austria-Hungary lacked an overseas colonial empire, but it was associated with periodic efforts at annexation and settlement in southern and eastern Europe, including in 1908 uh, uh, Bosnia. Austria was associated with the military subjugation of its insurgent peoples. And I'd add to the taxonomies already mentioned the notion of internal colonialism, the idea that polities like the dual monarchy or the United Kingdom a century ago were characterized by complex colonial or colonial style relationships with neighboring territories. Such empires were commonly associated with different forms of social as well as territorial division, with in particular the notion of division and rule. And this was applicable both in a dynastic empire like Austria-Hungary, as well as in the multinational union and empire that was the United Kingdom. 
In Austria-Hungary at the beginning of the 20th century, there were favoured nationalities and political classes through which Habsburg rule was sustained. And indeed, the very basis of the Compromise of 1867, which shaped the dual monarchy, was essentially an agreement between the emperor and the Hungarian political elites to the exclusion of others. And there are some similarities with the Irish experience. The union was effectively founded upon an agreement in 1801 between the British government and the Irish elite, that is to say, the Protestant ascendancy interest. Ireland, under the union, certainly at first, was ruled in association with a privileged social and economic class, just as other European multinational states were held together, partly through the agency of similarly privileged groups. Associated with divide and rule, however, were other policies of what might be defined as partial reinforcement and which were practiced throughout the history of the Habsburg monarchy as well as of the British and Irish unions. These embraced the simultaneous application of periodic reform as well as, often together with, suppression. And they were captured in the notion of constructive unionism which characterized so much of British policy in Ireland and indeed in Scotland, for that matter, in the 19th and early 20th centuries. Expressing this another way, British government applied both interconnected coercion and conciliation. Kicks and hippens, as they were sometimes called in Ireland, where the Habsburgs and their Magyar allies applied what were sometimes labelled as horsewhips and oats within the dual monarchy. Unions and empires survived for a time both because they demonstrated flexibility with the violent suppression uh, of dissent. But since both in the UK and the dual monarchy, the imperial centre held control over power and resource, so-called subsidiary nationalities and groups were effectively encouraged to apply pressure and negotiate there rather than uh, to negotiate and deal with each other. And these were lessons learnt and deployed, I think, both by unionists and nationalists across the years of union. Empires and unions were similarly affected by uh, the First World War, conflict which has been described as being both between as well as being against uh, empires and empire. We still tend to define the war in terms of the victors uh, uh, and the defeated. And there are obvious reasons for this continuing emphasis, given the complete collapse of the dual monarchy in 1918. In fact, the impact of the war on complex multinational polities like the UK bears some comparison with its imperial adversaries. In both Austria-Hungary and the United Kingdom, war brought the further marginalization of so-called subsidiary nationalities such as the Irish. In both Central Europe and the UK, war brought the escalation of existing national tensions as the smaller nations within wider unions saw themselves as being failed by their dominant partners. War brought the hugely increased influence of imperial military establishments, whether in London, Vienna, or elsewhere across Europe, with uh, related restrictions on civil liberties. War brought an end to the kinds of flexibility and ambiguity which had hitherto been essential in sustaining the governance of these complex multinational polities. In short, war magnified a set of tensions which were evident in different multinational unions and empires across Europe before 1914. And in the case of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, it opened up a pathway to 
failure and dissolution. But even in the UK, one of the victors, one of the arbiters of the post-war settlement, the impact of the war was felt in some broadly similar ways and with some similar results. The relegation, the alienation and the insurgency of a subsidiary nationality, the Irish. Empires were, as John has said, closely embroiled with partition in terms of the delineation of territorial acquisition. Partition has, as we've heard, been closely associated with the processes of decolonization in Ireland, in India, and in Palestine. It's also been closely associated with the fallout from the First World War, with the deconstruction of the great European empires after 1918, and the complex definition of the boundaries of successor states. Let me finish by reflecting a little on these issues, not least, as I've said, because they've got a bearing on the President's theme of uh, ethical commemoration. My particular focus today is on revisiting some of the complexities of the relationship between partition and unionism in this centenary year of the effective establishment of the main institutions of partition. First, I would recall that for unionists in Ireland, partition was originally a means to an end. Throughout the Home Rule era, Irish unionists, including Ulster unionists, rejected Irish nationalism because they said that they feared for their civil and religious liberties and for their economic prosperity in the event of Irish legislative independence. This was their repeated message right across the Home Rule era, and it was enshrined in their central canonical text, the Solemn League and Covenant of September 1912. Unionists, including Ulster Unionists, for the first 28 years or so of their movement between 1885 and 1913, didn't seek the division of Ireland actively, because the division of Ireland was also the fundamental division of unionism itself. Carson, the unionist leader, had had direct professional and personal experience of the huge difficulties in negotiating a territorial border uh, uh, between Alaska and Canada when he was Solicitor General. And it's likely that through close family connections, he was also aware of the failed partition of uh, Bengal from 1905 to 1911. Unionists worked with what was originally an outside suggestion of partition as a means by which to wreck home rule. And they moved from nine-county to six-county partition, and from there to what was, again, an outside notion of a six-county home rule scheme. And into this latter, they subsequently entrenched themselves. But the purpose of their political agitation had now largely been replaced by the means. That's to say the effect of upholding, as they argued, of their civil and religious and economic rights had been overshadowed by the agency of partition. Means had overtaken ends. Second, and related to this, I'd suggest that in a sense, unionism after partition became that which it had ostensibly opposed. Just as the disillusion of the European multinational empires produced successor states, which were often themselves forms of mini empire or indeed mini union, so with the redesign of the United Kingdom in the early 1920s, Northern Ireland was a form of successor state to a failed union and to an empire in crisis. Northern, uh, Northern Ireland Northern Ireland possessed home rule or devolution within a sovereign United Kingdom state. It was not itself sovereign, but it had some of the markers of a state. 
and it bore some comparison to other interwar continental European polities, products of the dissolution of empire and with their own dominant and subordinate nationalities and cultures. The North was closely linked to an evolving dominant Ulster identity, which developed alongside unionism and which was by definition exclusively Protestant, and it drew upon an imagined colonial or planter narrative of challenge and survival over 300 years. There was very little space or sanction in the North for those who lay beyond this dominant identity, and the consequences of this for Northern nationalists and their civil rights were very bleak indeed. Putting this another way, Unionism was originally, at least in terms of its expressed ideals about integration within a supranational union and about protecting rights that they said were under imminent threat. And yet, unionists later often embraced an exclusivist set of identities and at times deeply unjust actions, which they themselves had once fearly, fearfully attributed to their purported enemies they became a version of that which they had claimed to oppose. The third point that I'd suggest is that while partition has for long been associated with uh, the single British measure, the Government of Ireland Act of 1920, it was in fact a process and not a single event. Partition was a dynamic which ultimately produced a radically different form of border to that which was originally and painfully debated by Carson and Redmond in 1912-1916. Partition in Ireland, as then conceived, involved the possible creation of an administrative border between two polities associated with a substantially redesigned United Kingdom. And even the Government of Ireland Act itself envisioned two Home Rule territories in Ireland which could have remained closely interconnected. The partition settlement, which was finally confirmed in the mid-1920s and 1925, was reached by incremental steps, but it ultimately involved an economically and politically much more profound division of the island and of its people than had been foreseen when the notion first gained traction uh, in the years before the First World War. Expressing this another way, the story of partition is in part the story of unintended consequences in Irish history. And let me make a brief fourth, final and very broad point in relation to partition and empire, and in doing so return to Central Europe. One of the major themes within the current history writing on Austria-Hungary is a focus on those who live their lives pursuing their personal, their familial, social and professional priorities relatively distant from the wider political and military concerns of nation and empire. People whose values, whose ideals, whose integrity were expressed within the intimate and the local rather than any uh, wider canvas. These notions have a wider relevance, including for Ireland, uh, as the first MacNav 100 seminar discussed. And it's worth underlining that not everyone 100 years ago was a hero either of the Union or of the nation and of its revolution. And that, as the work of different scholars has pointed out, Irish people often led their lives quietly and in politically undemonstrative ways far removed from the epic struggles of resistance and liberation. 
The point of commemoration, John has rightly said, is to interrogate the past for the sake of the present. And perhaps it may be about the interrogation of the past for the shaping of our vision of the future. Historians are ever conscious of the burden of presentism, of the dangers of unduly shaping their work according to contemporary preoccupations. They are also at best skeptical or unwilling futurologists. As the Scots historian Tom Devine has said, the future is not my period. The complexity of the past and an unquestionable curiosity. The complexity of the past and an unquenchable curiosity are historians' stock and trade. But while allowing for all of this, it's important to reflect on past ideals and upon the distance sometimes separating them in subsequent history. It's instructive too to pursue the comparative context within which Ireland and its future were defined and envisioned in the age of home rule and revolution. And it's surely worth reflecting on the contingent and the dynamic nature of our history, and indeed on the extent to which our past commemorations, both North and South, may have sought to privilege particular moments or particular people or particular classes to the exclusion of a much richer whole. Thank you, Alvin um, Jackson from Edinburgh. We'll pick up some of those points, Alvin, in the debate uh, later. Dr. Mary Coleman is reader in modern Irish history at Queen's University in Belfast. She's written widely on the revolutionary period, including a study of County Longford and the Irish Revolution, 1910 to 23. She's especially interested in the role of women and in gender relations during the period and the experience of the Southern Protestant minority and the lives of revolutionary veterans after the conflict, including the award of pensions and medals. She is an advisor to the Department of Defence and is a member of the Northern Ireland Office's Centenary Historical Panel and of the Church of Ireland's Working Group on Historical Centenaries. Mary Coleman joins us now from Belfast. Professor John Horn has offered us a comprehensive yet succinct perspective on the themes of nation, empire and partition in the context of this island and its wider place in the British Empire and beyond 100 years ago. I would now like to explore how these themes affected the personal experiences of some of those who lived through the events and to consider how we remember a century later, a distance sufficiently safe to allow for more inclusive reflection. Professor Horne suggested that the dynamics of nation and sovereignty were stronger driving forces behind the Irish Revolution than were concerns of empire. That is a convincing analysis from the perspective of the, of the insurgents. But have we looked sufficiently at the factors motivating their adversaries? Members of the Crown forces who served in Ireland during these years, men who, from the Irish perspective, constitute the other referred to by the president in his remarks launching this series in December. In that reflection, the president noted how the violent actions of the Crown forces were strategic tools employed to defend empire, and certainly that was the vision of the political and military leaders who deployed these men to Ireland. But what of the individual motivations of the men who defended the British nation and empire in Ireland throughout 1920 and 1921? 
We know something of what triggered infamous reprisals, such as the indiscriminate shooting of civilians at Cork Park or the burning of Cork City, often knee-jerk reactions to deaths of comrades or the inevitable consequence of overindulgence in alcohol. These events took place in Ireland, but what brought these men who perpetrated them to Ireland in the first place? The President has cautioned against stereotypical depictions of the other. Older generations in Ireland were led to believe that the Black and Tans and Auxiliaries were unstable renegade ex-convicts, a perception largely demolished by the empirical research of the Canadian historian David Leeson, among others. Through own personal experiences and testimonies offer an opportunity to explore the rationale behind the decisions and the actions of the Crown forces. Just over 100 years ago, on the 2nd of February 1921, a group of 19 men, including engineers, mechanics, clerks, a messenger, a dairy assistant, an actor, a spinner, and a teacher and preacher, all of whom were members of M Company of the Auxiliary Division of the RIC, were ambushed by the North Longford Flying Column of the IRA in the townland of Clonfin, between the town of Brannard and the village of Balnalee. Four auxiliaries were killed, and a further seven were subsequently discharged as medically unfit, never to serve again on account of the severity of the injuries which they sustained. The vast majority had been in Ireland for six weeks at most, and their original training for trench or airborne warfare during the First World War left them ill-prepared for an ambush on a quiet Irish country road. Testimonies, testimonies of the injured and the families of the deceased in claims for compensation offer some insight into what led them to such strange surroundings. One survivor, William Bellingham, said that he joined the auxiliaries merely to tide him over in the crisis in the engineering trade after the First World War. Harold Clayton, one of the fatalities, had been sending home a very valuable five pounds weekly to his pregnant wife and child. The most unusual member of the group, a South African Boer War veteran who had served on the same side of his former enemy during the recent Great War, made the cryptic comment that he hoped something would come out of joining the RIC, indicating a possible ideological motive. Though the fact of his divorce later in 1921 suggests a possible element of escapism to his brief Irish adventure. In other ways, the Clonfin Auxiliaries exhibit the nuances and complexities surrounding the revolutionary years. One of those permanently incapacitated was an Irishman from County Leash, while one of the surviving Auxiliaries subsequently married a Longford woman who had grown up not far from the Clonfin ambush. Exploring the lives of the individual members of the Crown Forces allows us to view events in Ireland in 1920 and 21 from the perspective of the other and suggests that while at the macro level, considerations of nation, identity, loyalty, and empire drove the conflict, at the micro level of the individual participants, more mundane considerations of job security and economic stability go some way to explaining how it was that many British men who served in the Crown Forces during the War of Independence found themselves in Ireland in the first place. The centenary commemoration of the Clonfin ambush took place earlier this month a muted event in the context of the pandemic and their current restrictions on public gatherings. The ceremony, organised by the descendants of the IRA men of the North Longford Flying Column, honoured the contribution of their ancestors to the achievement of Irish independence. But it also recognised the loss of the lives of four auxiliaries. In the context of last year's controversy surrounding the place of the RIC in centenary commemorations, this event, along with one held in Solihead Beg in January 2019, 
shows how commemoration can be an inclusive rather than an exclusive or exclusionary process. The John Finn centenary commemoration epitomized the spirit of ethical remembering which the president has done so much to encourage. In a similar vein, a personal journey of reconciliation undertaken by Mercy Sister Maeve Brady, whose father Tom Brady was a member of the IRA ambush party at Clonfin, to visit the four cemeteries in England where the deceased auxiliaries were laid to rest, was at once a simple but a powerful and significant gesture. In the final section of his discourse dealing with the effects of partition, Professor Horn drew attention to the Catholic and nationalist minority trapped in the enclave of the newly created Northern Ireland, and has also alluded to the problems that ensue when a nation or a state becomes defined by the identity of the majority. 100 years on, as we live through the centenary of the creation of Northern Ireland, we face one of the most challenging contexts for all of the events that have to date been marked during this past decade of centenaries. For the unionist community, the story of Northern Ireland is a heroic tale of survival against the odds. And for nationalists, it is one of abandonment, alienation and discrimination. How can a middle ground be found between those two extremes? Perhaps the answer is that one cannot and therefore should not be sought. The role of scholars is to expose, expose the complexity of the facts from which those various competing narratives draw their interpretations. We should be wary of those who seek to appropriate conveniently cherry-picked events to make a statement relevant to current issues. In a similar vein, cheerful prognostications about the potential of the coming centenary, made in the context of centenary commemorations, runs the risk of ignoring how the present has been conditioned by past painful experience. The issues of identity, loyalty and nationhood explored by Professor Horn are also pertinent to the experience of Ireland's other minority population, which found itself left behind in a majoritarian jurisdiction, the Southern Protestants. When the first census of the Irish Free State was held in 1926, it revealed a significant demographic change. The reduction by one third of the non-Catholic population of the 26 counties from the last all-island census conducted in 1911. There is a relative level of scholarly consensus that this phenomenon was the result of a myriad of economic and demographic factors which played out over a long period of time, predating the revolutionary period but intensifying during it. Voluntary emigration for economic reasons, natural decline where birth rates failed to keep pace with mortality, and the departure of the British garrison and other servants of the state, British state in 1922 all contributed to the significant downturn. While scholars reject the emotive claims alleging a systematic campaign of ethnic cleansing, that is not to say that the revolutionary upheaval of the period was not a factor in Protestant departures, especially in the most violent years between 1920 and 1922. If Protestants were not targeted specifically because of their religion alone, their denominational affiliation was often part of a wider associational culture, such as membership of the Orange Order or fraternising in church or social groups with co-religionists who are members of the Crown Forces that was part of the explanation for them coming under suspicion. In January 1922, Southern Protestants faced an unknown future. The decline of their numbers by 1926 indicates that at least some departed to Britain or to Northern Ireland in many cases. However, that focus on departures can detract attention from the fact that the majority elected to remain. In an editorial in the Church of Ireland Gazette in January 1922, 
soon after the ratification of the treaty by the Dáil, it recognised that the loyalists of the South and West do not regard the change which is impending with any great enthusiasm, but asserted that they are determined to make the best of things, promising to give their wholehearted and active support to the Irish Free State. The enormity of that decision and the wrench which, in, which it entailed for many in abandoning an integral part of their identity and association with nation is one which should not be overlooked in our current commemorative landscape. For the descendants of those Protestant Remainers, commemorating certain actions from the War of Independence and Civil War in the South will evoke painful memories of past family experiences. The faith placed in the new state by Protestants was not always reciprocated. Discrimination against Protestants in the South was never comparable to that of Catholics in the North. Yet, in his memoir of early life in southeast Leinster, the late Church of Ireland canon Norman Ruddock recalled the ghettoization of life lived around sectarian institutions, the divisions within families caused by Catholic insistence on Nate Hemery, and the difficulties of navigating heightened social tensions locally as a recently ordained cleric during the Fetheron Sea boycott in the 1950s. We may now think of these experiences as belonging, thankfully, to the history books, yet similarities can be observed between the choice facing Southern loyalists in 1922 of whether to leave or to remain, and the choices that might yet face Unionists in Northern Ireland in the current context of discussions about border poles and the constitutional future of the entity created by the partition that we are discussing here today. During an interview with the comedian Patrick Keelty for a television documentary made not long after the Brexit referendum, the Northern Ireland First Minister Arlene Foster speculated that in the hypothetical event of Irish unity, she did not feel she would be able to continue living in Ireland. These views were far from unanimous within unionism. By contrast, Lady Sylvia Herman, then a sitting independent unionist MP for North Down, declared forthrightly, I will be staying. I've always loved this country. I will not leave it, even if it is ruled by Dublin. While wary of drawing anachronistic parallels between the past and the present, we can still look to the past to inform the future. In the event of a united Ireland, are there lessons to be learned from the experience of the integration of the Southern Protestants after 1921 that could inform any future status of Northern Unionists in such an identity, entity as United Ireland? Because it's highly unlikely to be as seamless a process as it was then and will require significant change to institutions in the Republic also. While the events we commemorate belong to the past, the ritual of commemoration is a live process reflecting current sensibilities, opinions, and priorities. The future also has a role in this process. Reflecting in the present upon how we did things in the past offers the opportunity to inform the future. Thanks to Marie Coleman in Belfast. Our thanks uh, to John Horne, of course, for his initial paper, and to Neve Gallagher, Unilow Halpin, Alvin Jackson as well. Before opening a general debate, I now invite President Higgins for his reflections. In today's address, I wish to reflect on the relationship between culture and empire and how their interaction, in the case of an assumed British cultural hegemony at the time, generated versions of the Irish other that accommodated and rationalised violence. It helped, perhaps, in what was described as a project for the restoration of order 
to invoke as background an ongoing project that was one of replacing an inferior set of Irish cultural values with what were perceived to be a superior set of values worthy of an empire. The mind of empire includes assumptions as to the ranking of cultures and thus generated what could be a comprehensive ideology for the defence of an empire that was at risk. Notions of cultural superiority of inferior peoples and their cultures has as intellectual background the European Enlightenment and in particular the concept of modernity which holds a key role in imperialist adventurism. Those of imperialist mindset sometimes invoked the Enlightenment's tool of modernity quite openly in the service of imperialist expansion. A significant minority of others, such as Kant, Diderot and Herder, held within Enlightenment thinking an anti-imperialist view. As Sankarmutu has noted, Within the latter half of the 18th century, the Enlightenment era is an anomalous period in modern European political thought. For it is only then that a group of significant thinkers attacked the very foundations of imperialism, not only defending non-European peoples against the injustices of European imperial rule, but also challenging the idea that Europeans had any right to subjugate, colonise and civilise the rest of the world. By the 19th century, however, a regression had taken place with prominent European political philosophers choosing to be either agnostic on the issue of imperialism or, like John Stuart Mill, Tocqueville, Hegel and Marx, explicitly accepting of what they saw as the inevitability of the extension of European categories of thought and European rule over non-European peoples. Karl Marx, for example, while acknowledging the moral right of Indian rebels against British rule, believed that India could not progress without a European imperialism, opening up what were dismissively suggested as closed Asiatic societies. That a critique of empire emerged at the very moment of expansive imperialisms is a testament to the importance that these radical dissenting minds attached to moral principles in both utopian and interpeople relations. Indeed, at this time, imperialist expansion, including that of Britain, France and other European empires, presented their empires and their expansions almost exclusively as a force for moral good, political stability and economic progress, modernity. Little space was allowed at the time for any consideration of the negative, destructive, distorting or debilitating effects that imperialism was having on the cultural and social development of indigenous societies or the cultural trauma that results from such subjugation. As Simon Potter notes in his paper on empire and cultures, stereotyped images of empire and of those peoples and cultures who were being colonised found their way into the homes of empires, including British homes, and may have constituted one of the most basic and pervasive ways in which citizens of empires at home were offered and consumed the experience of empire as a superiority in which they were partners and thus came to hold as normal 
not only images of racial and cultural difference, but of superiority and backwardness of different peoples. Imperialism, by its very nature, creates, reinforces and maintains unequal relationships between peoples, favouring the more powerful. This is a core aspect of its modus operandi. When we consider cultural imperialism heavily informed, as the concept is by the work of Foucault and Derrida, and in the similar work of Edward Said and other post-structuralist and post-colonialist theorists, we can see why, within the realm of post-colonial discourse, cultural imperialism is constituted as the cultural legacy of a stage of colonization that succeeds conquest, and is not limited by it, but rather secures the conquest by forms of social action, cooperation, and administrative institutional arrangements that contribute to the continuation, after post-formal independence, of British and other Western versions of hegemony. An ideology that regarded those threatening empire as a dangerous other, as Richard Carney might put it, and one prone to violence, is helpful in explaining the violence employed by British forces by way of response to guerrilla and random attacks during the Irish War of Independence. What is particularly distinctive of that response is the use of collective punishments and reprisals that resulted in several atrocities already mentioned, be it Bloody Sunday in Dublin, the sack of Balbriggan, the burning of Cork City, to name just three well-known events. The philosophy behind the reprisals, while rooted in the British attempting to reassert control, often involved resorting to arbitrary reprisals, not only against Republican activists, but often their surrounding civilian population. An unofficial government policy of reprisals, with a community impact, began in September 1919 in Fermoy, County Cork, when 200 British soldiers looted and burned the main businesses of the town, after one of their soldiers, Private William Jones, the first British Army death in the campaign, had been killed in an armed raid by the local IRA. The pattern of killings and reprisals escalated in the second half of 1920 and into 1921. The policy of reprisals, which involved public denunciation or denial and private approval, was famously satirised by Lord Hugh Cecil, who reportedly stated, It seems to be agreed that there is no such thing as reprisals, but they are having a good effect. Many more reprisals occurred, which had a very deep community effect in all classes, such as the indiscriminate killing of Eileen Quinn, shot dead while seven months pregnant as she stood outside her house in County Galway with her three children by her side. Much of the reprisal-based violence was not sanctioned. Indeed, officially sanctioned reprisals did not begin until January 1921 with the burning of seven houses in Middleton County, Cork. It is important to bear in mind that the character of the violence between communities in what would become Northern Ireland at this time was different for a number of reasons, including the proximity of the communities to each other, and that the sources of such violence were not simply on a basis of religious difference. This will be the subject of a closer examination in a further seminar. The move by the British forces towards attacks on creameries 
which were major employers and sources of essential foodstuffs, marked an escalation in both a wider socio-economic impact and the sophistication of reprisal tactics. The first such attack commenced on the 30th of September 1920 with the destruction of Tubber Curry, local cooperative creamery, during which bombs and rifle fire left the building and machinery beyond use. Nearby Achenry Cooperative Creamery was also destroyed that night. The destruction of the creameries posed long-term challenges to the economy. Damages to the local dairy industry amounted to £20,000 in buildings, machinery and stock, depriving 1,500 farmers of their main source of income. From the summer of 1920 onwards, British forces consistently responded to IRA activities by attacking cooperative creameries. By the time a truce between the IRA and the Crown forces came into effect, 40 cooperative creameries had been destroyed, with another 35 rendered unfit for work. The destruction of each creamery put an estimated 800 farmers out of business. The death and destruction unleashed by the War of Independence illustrate how violence in conflict imitates violence, has a brutalising effect, and it produces extremes of further forms of violence that are no longer within the control of the original instigators. The cruelties and hardship that ensued in collective punishment were characteristic of, I think, a decidedly economic dimension. Both guerrilla warfare and reprisals saw loss of life and widespread destruction of property. But as historian Patrick Doyle has noted, the targeting of cooperative creameries caused maximum economic damage by destroying a cherished public utility and became a key tactic in the security forces war against the IRA. While reprisal-based violence was a key element of the British military strategy in the Irish War of Independence, it was not unique to the Irish experience and had been used effectively by British ruling forces in India in the previous century. While conventional histories have counted only 100,000 Indian soldiers who were slaughtered in reprisal for the India mutiny, Amarish Misra argues that there was an untold holocaust in India, causing the deaths of several million people over 10 years beginning in 1857. If rebels and civilians killed by British forces, desperate to impose order, are counted. Reprisals were thus a key tool in defending empire and in the imposition of colonial power, laws, attributes and ideologies. Collective punishments were also used some decades later as an official strategy to suppress the Mau Mau uprising in Kenya in 1952 and again in Cyprus in the same decade in the form of evicting families from their homes and closing shops where British soldiers and police had been murdered. The use of such punishment and its justification uh, to those who carry it out is rooted in the notion of the collective as a version of the dangerous other, a community that is harbouring the perpetrators of violent revolt in their midst. The othering of particular cultures, including the attribution of particular tendencies and particular ideologies to the perceived as lesser. Othering, therefore, provided for an insidious rationalisation of collective acts of violence and reprisals. The perpetrators of such became, of course, 
the oppressive other in nationalist perceptions, and to whom could be attributed real and enlarged fear-inducing attributes of character. The other was perceived as one who was indiscriminate as to who was to be included in reprisal, with tragic consequences for those not involved in the conflict. As we know from Irish history, this tendency has been employed by militant republicans to enable the contemplation, execution and justification of acts of brutality against those perceived to be agents or beneficiaries of British rule in Ireland. The assumption of a cultural hegemony was not confined to the realm of state or military. In his seminal work, Culture and Imperialism, Edward Said has shown the impact that imperialist thought and the unquestioned project of colonialism had was quite general on culture, including mainstream written culture. On English and French novelists of the 19th and early 20th centuries, for example, themes of imperialism, anti-imperialism and decolonisation are well exemplified. In the novel Robinson Crusoe, whose stories centres on a European man who creates a fiefdom in a distant non-European island. Of course, an older example centuries earlier is Shakespeare's The Tempest. If the novel represents an aesthetic art form influenced by imperial expansion, it can be further argued then that among Western imperialism's most effective tools for domination of other cultures, its cultural assumptions of superiority of the powerful and the lesser value of the culture of the other plays just as strong a role as political and economic strategies. Edward Said puts it succinctly, the power to narrate or to block other narratives from forming and emerging. By other narratives, of course, he is referring to those that might have been lodged in either ancient practice, as in the Irish case, or indeed in the utopian visions of imagined futures. Either can impede the successful colonisation of a people, and thus require to be quenched in the interests of both the security and the expansion of the empire. As he puts it, for the enterprise of empire depends upon the idea of having an empire, and all kinds of preparations are made for it within a culture. Then in turn, imperialism acquires a kind of coherence, a set of experiences, and a presence of ruler and unruled alike within the culture. His observation is acute, for while the great expansionist age of empire largely ended shortly after World War II, when most colonies gained independence, imperialism as a set of assumptions, as a mind of policy, continued to exert considerable cultural influence after formal independence. Indeed, it is illuminating to examine how colonialists and imperialists have employed culture to control distant lands and peoples, how the self-justifying rhetoric in the literature of the past could be utilised to bolster imperialism and rationalise, for example, the West dominance and exploitation of non-Western people. Even in modern writing, invocation of the white man's burden occasionally re-emerges with its inherent arrogance and racism towards the objects of its gaze accompanied perhaps with a nostalgia for a world of servants that sought to relieve the discomfort of heat and life among what were perceived as a backward people. 
The cultural imperialism that was and is at the heart of empire, by its promotion and imposition of the culture of a powerful nation over a less powerful one, an experience that Priya Satya calls the imposition of an autocratic, racist, violent and extractive form of rule, resulted in the case of Ireland in a form of British cultural hegemony which attempted to shape and influence general cultural values in Ireland and among other peoples that were colonised. Culture is, however, a process, and the dominating culture would come to be changed itself by that with which it interacted, by what it experienced in the effort of colonisation, be it cricket in India or the West Indies, or writing in the English language in the Irish case. In the long sweep of its history, British cultural imperialism in Ireland took various forms, manifesting itself in a set of exclusionary attitudes and ideologies, formal policies that were discriminatory and which subjugated Irish cultural traditions and expressions to a lesser consideration. While there was a religious base to this, it was not exclusively so. There were significant localised exceptions, such as that of the Presbyterian Church, whose members have made and continue to make a singular contribution to Irish cultural practices old and new, including the restoration and development of the Irish language and music. If we are to achieve ethical remembrance and the creation of a shared memory at peace, it is important to recognise the role that the mind of imperialism, and specifically cultural imperialism, had as a precipitating force in the Irish independence struggle, and that we seek to understand the response to it. Irish cultural subjugation drew by way of response initially the reassertion of what had been a suppressed cultural expression one that would come in time to support a militant nationalism as part of the independence movement. This took the form of campaigns for the revival of the Irish language, Irish sport, Irish music, religion and a wider Celtic reclamation. However, revivals that have the character of recovery of what was suppressed carry their own exclusionary danger and it is a danger which we have not been successful in avoiding. All cultural expressions, in all their adaptations to and inclusions of each other, must be part of a shared future. If there is a mind of the defence of empire that influenced events in Ireland a century ago, there is also a mind of Irish resistance to, and also anomalous accommodation to empire, which had its exclusionary flaws, which it would go on to expand with some disastrous institutional consequences. We also must acknowledge that the British found willing agents of empire among the native Irish from the earliest days of conquest. While many were drawn through economic necessity to serve, it cannot be denied that both at home in Ireland and throughout the expanding empire, some Irishmen became even enthusiastic accomplices to the excesses, cruelty and hubris of colonialism. In all of this, there is the grounding fact of humiliation inflicted, experienced, remembered, recalled or imagined. The psychological impact of the cultural imperialism that was experienced over the centuries in Ireland was perceived as a deeply ingrained urge to humiliate. This fact requires a profound meditation on a range of questions. How have our attitudes towards ourselves been influenced by hundreds of years of colonialism or being constituted lesser, violent, drunk, 
indolent, backward. The grotesque dehumanising depictions of the Irish in punch cartoons are a case in point, but they are of the past. Are there residues of post-colonial inferiority in attitudes to the Irish language and wider Irish culture? Do the terms so often used as something being very Irish, or even that on occasion decisions are described as an Irish solution to an Irish problem, not reveal a residual belief that a description of being Irish is synonymous with being lesser? Lifting oneself into the present with the hope of a more fulfilling shared future requires a movement from old assumptions, from both sides of the equation that is the experience of empire. No more than with other European imperialisms, and there were many, and there are today states and powers with imperialist tendencies, the legacies of imperialism have never, I believe, been adequately addressed. Empire rule, wherever its source and whenever, has led so often to the exploitation of peoples and their subjugation on the basis of race and culture, in a system maintained by the brutal and systematic violence of an expansionist force. Nostalgia for empire and imperialism is too often combined with a reluctance to see contemporary racism and xenophobia as being sourced in the grounding assumptions of imperial and colonial power. The time available today has permitted only a brief overview of some key aspects of imperialist source violence, such as that which was part of the violences during the War of Independence, a war which led to the deaths of 2,000 people, of whom 750 were civilians. We thankfully now have an opportunity to transact that which establishes the distance between us as peoples in terms of different narratives of violence as recalled, we all can, with much benefit, face and critique the absolutisms that drove those impulses to this violence and all violences and the careless and dangerous assumptions of the other from which are sown such violences. The use of such violence on the part of the powerful ultimately became a decisive factor in the outcome of the War of Independence, having resulted in shock and outrage internationally and garnering increased support for the IRA and the independence movement at home and abroad. It is important to be wide and generous in our willingness to critique our assumptions. We have, I suggest, shown an energy that is welcome in critiquing nationalism, less so in relation to imperialism. That is why I have today simply sought, with humility, to redress the balance. Today we explore this past, not to wear inherited grievances or seek justification for injustices perpetrated in our name, nor do we seek to compare atrocities committed in the name of nationalism, unionism or British imperialism. We must have a deeper purpose, to gain a clearer understanding of what occurred and why, acknowledging the path that has led each of us to where we are today, and in being open to the perspective of others, we must hope to extricate ourselves from the grip of any uncritical, simplistic version of our complex story. This, I believe, will enable us to grasp together the possibilities for a brighter future together, based on mutual respect, common interests and trust. It is my hope that by dwelling on some of the less examined aspects, including the sources of violence and their repercussions, the context of a conquering empire in decline, and the challenge of fear of the loss of what might be its most proximate part, 
that we can arrive at a more comprehensive narrative of the times, a deeper collective understanding, an ethics of memory and remembrance that may add a process of healing for us all as we reflect on these events which have marked us so profoundly as a society. In doing so, the prize of an inclusive commemoration, one that becomes emancipatory in its consequences, becomes possible, one that allows for uncomfortable truths to be acknowledged, and by doing so on all sides, becomes achievable, allows us to envisage lives lived together, free from the snares of remembered violence. Milibuikas Berbanacht. So, picking up now on what the President has been saying, I'm joined again by our four historians uh, remotely, Unino Halpins in Dublin, Alvin Jackson in Edinburgh, Marie Coleman in Belfast, Neil Gallagher in Cambridge. Um, there are so many, and John Horn is still with us, and the President will join in as well. So many threads uh, to pick up on all of this. Alvin Jackson, can I come to you first? I mean, partition itself has been mentioned in so many of the papers, and it's just a century old. Its centenary is coming up. How is that going to be uh, commemorated? That's a challenge because the Irish border is now back in the news with Brexit. It's suddenly something the British forgot about and didn't want to know about for so long, and now it's bang right on the table again. Well, to state the obvious, there are uh, ferocious challenges uh, with the commemoration, uh, the marking, the revisiting of uh, uh, partition in this its centenary year. And there are others within this conversation who will be as well placed as I to speak to this uh, and who are involved with uh, 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 with uh, the administration of this in, in different ways. I think. The essential difficulty, of course, is uh, that uh, the commemorative stimulus comes uh, uh, generally from the state, whether you're talking about the decade of centenaries uh, uh, in the south or this particular centenary in the north. And uh, in the north, uh, the nature of the state is and was ferociously contested. What is to be done in these circumstances? Um, well, uh, the state clearly has to have a role uh, at some level, um, but uh, that role, I think, needs to be uh, carefully considered, uh, perhaps in both jurisdictions. Uh, and I think the role might well be about encouraging more of a bottom-up bottom approach to the reconsideration of events in the early 1920s than, uh, than a top-down. And I think as well, uh, uh, we historians have got a, a part to play in all of this through the work that we undertake. But I think as well, uh, uh, there's the work of local history communities as well in, uh, in the north, as well as across the island as a whole, who've got a contribution to make. Mary Coleman, what's your opinion? You're among the advisors to the Northern Ireland office on this. Is it deeply contested? Is it controversial? Well, yes, it is in that there are there's one community which is just not engaging with it. But I think there's a, a wider community, not just of historians, I should say, but also the arts are quite involved in this and seen as someone has a, have a safer space to 
for commemoration. And there's a sense among a lot of people that whether that one can park the question of whether or not one agrees with the establishment of Northern Ireland or not, and simply accept the fact that it is there and it was established 100 years ago. And if there are going to be commemorative events around it, then it is best to look at it in, in the proper historical context. There are moves similar to what Union spoke about in the South regarding the 1926 census to ensure that the fullest range of archival material is made available. Um, so I, I think there's there's a wide sense of moving beyond the one's view on it to accept it as a historical fact and reflect on it from that perspective. Yeah. Niamh Gallagher, what's your opinion on this? Yes, I mean, I agree with Alvin and Marie. I think our roles, myself and Marie, who are on the, um, the historical advisory panel, it's an independent role. And that independence of what it can do is crucial to the whole project. Yes, it was set up insofar as we were created by the British government. But in terms of what we ourselves decide to do in relation to helping to mark, to revisit, to think about the creation of the state, that comes down to us and to our expertise. And so I think what we're trying to do is to complicate a very hegemonic picture from one side or the other, to show a range of different experiences that happened, uh, of course, from 1923 to 1922, but also over the last 100 years. It's about unfreezing these categories that President Higgins spoke about last time in his first talk in December. It's about opening up questions of agency, behaviour, attitudes to, to historical inqu inquiry, and hopefully we're, we're going to do a, a fair job on that. That's, not, that's a, not an easy job, though, to get each community. I mean, Northern Ireland particularly is a very special case where people tend to see their own history in a particular way. How, are commemorations likely, in your view, to open minds rather than to leave people where they are? Well, that's, a, that's a, a really interesting question, John, and I think it touches on the differences between history and memory. So people have very strong senses of their own history, which often rely on selective narratives, selective versions of the past. And really, it's up to them should they wish to think outside those confines. But in terms of what we are trying to do, we are trying to bring a more, um, more of a richness and the complexity to what actually happened to the public domain. We're not trying to be prescriptive. If, they don't, if people don't want to engage with a more holistic view of the past, I mean, that is up to them. But that's not what our role is. And our role is we are committed to the history. We are committed to thinking about experiences at the time. And we're committed to bringing those to a wider public. Yeah, Eunan O'Halpin, what's your opinion? Well, in, in relation to commemorating partition and the foundation of the Northern State, if I take them together, uh, my view is that certainly in this jurisdiction, the state will do as, as little as possible and stay away uh, as much as possible. And we will encourage, particularly in terms of partition and the border, encourage and facilitate local groups to do ideally on a cross-community basis, on a cross-border basis and so on. In other words, I'd I don't sound cynical, but I don't think anybody in, in, in government buildings wishes to anyway stir the pot. And I think that paradoxically, uh, the virus especially, I mean, I was outside Mount Joy on the 1st of November uh, 2020, uh, the anniversary of the centenary of Kevin Barrick's execution. I, myself and my wife, the only people there because of the virus. And that probably, uh, uh, in some ways, 
prevented them, what might have been a scrum of different sort of commemorative groups. I, I do think in some ways that the virus may, may, may in, in the matter of occupying space and so on and inflammatory or de- speeches and so on, the, the virus may help. But I, I do think the state here, we, we, it's very conscious uh, that there are different perspectives and different takes, uh, particularly along, along the, the border and so on, and doesn't wish to uh, promote anything that's going to uh, cause political upset to anyone, but is, is very willing to support local local history societies and exercises like that, and cross-community especially. And the EU, of course, as well, has been funding a lot of cross-community activities generally uh, and along the border. So I think... Uh, uh, it's not a matter of the less said the better exactly, but the less that's said by uh, centrally by, by by the government, and not at all, I don't mean by, by President Higgins, uh, but by, by, by the government, uh, in a sense, to try to, to you know, claim back a fourth green field or anything like that, the better. You, you yourself have said Thank that the British saw this really as a second-order problem, but, but then it came bang on their plate in, in 1969, and then, of course, recently, under Brexit, it's it's... A different contour again. Lloyd George would surely be surprised to think that the bargain he made, the, the fix that he managed to, to deliver in 1920, is still centre stage. Oh, absolutely, he would be. And, and we forget, for instance, uh, General Smuts, who had been a rebel in South Africa, and the Boers, who got terribly treated uh, during the Boer War, uh, suddenly get rehabilitated. They get deothered, as it were. Uh, to, if, if there is such a term or if I've just coined it. And, uh, but my, my, my argument is that for 21, from the British point of view, Ireland was a second order problem. And secondly, that Ireland was to consider extent incorporated into, it, we, we could call it the Imperial or the Commonwealth wealth project, uh, with, with considerable success, even though she joins the League of Nations and so on. She actually uses the other com- the Commonwealth dominions a lot as allies in, in international discourse and in discourse with Britain, so I couldn't. I could. I don't think you could say that independent Ireland uh, was a, a sort of anti, whether it was anti-imperial. It certainly wasn't anti-Commonwealth. And uh, even you know, in 1949, uh, there's evidence that Mr. De Valera was appalled, not just because uh, he wasn't in government uh, after the declaration, after the declaration of the Republic, because he would have liked to do that perhaps. But at leaving the Commonwealth, which he saw as as uh, uh, very difficult, but he found it difficult to oppose in public. Indeed, yeah. Uh, John Horn, what do you th- make of, of the whole uh, question now of partition itself in terms of how Brexit has impacted on it and how it has come to the surprise, presumably, of the British cabinet that this border, which they didn't know where it was pretty well, and it wasn't in the Brexit debate at all when the issue was being... But now it's bang, it's now in contention, as it were, again. I know it is. It is extraordinary, and I think at the time during the, uh, the the referendum campaign, the only people in Britain who were really speaking out in a warning way were Tony Blair and John Major, who of course had been instrumental in the Belfast Peace Agreement, saying that this will be called into jeopardy. But I think it was simply off, off the screen, um, uh, even though the warnings were there. And now, of course, it's absolutely centre stage. In a curious way, though, I think it's a, a, a logical and ironic result of Brexit, because Brexit was the opposition to the European Union, and then it was really a failure to see the role that the European Union had played, that the single market had played, in effect, uh, reducing this border to nothing once the military conflict uh, uh, was over um, in 1998. And so I think it has indeed caught um, caught them completely by surprise. And what it's thrown back 
absolutely to the centre, it seems to me, therefore is the nature of the union itself, because coming in tandem with the uh, challenge from Scotland, it seems to me 100 years on we are back actually to something which Alvin alluded to, and which was the way the Liberal Party in particular at the turn of the 20th century thought of a kind of devolved union, that, that, that Irish home rule might be accompanied by Welsh home rule, by Scottish home rule, and that we therefore at the moment have a kind of disintegration of the union, the British, the United Kingdom union, um, uh, uh, which is raised through um, what's been crystallised by the issue of the border in the north. Again, it's an, un an unintended consequence, isn't it? It is, absolutely. But can I just come in, just a, a quick remark. I was fascinated um, on, on, on the question of, of um, partition when it happened and commemoration now, because we have talked about the commemorative aspect in a north-south connection. And I just wanted to ask, Marie, I was fascinated by what you said about, was it the, the Clonfin incident in County Longford and the way in which local people there had gone to Britain to seek out the tombs or uh, the traces of the auxiliaries. And coming back to President Higgins' point about the violence uh, in the War of Independence, I wonder whether you think that there is any um, space um, at the moment for some east-west exploration of that. Uh, it seems to me that the commemoration of Balbriggan, the burning of Cork, that the British were simply absent. But is this an opportunity to try to um, uh, uh, engage in some sort of um, uh, commemorative activity, which I think in the Republic, for us, would have the effect of trying to enable us better to understand and demythologize the black and tans, for example. Do you think that there's any possibility of that, or do you think that it's something which, um, uh, again, as Unum was perhaps suggesting, in some regards, the authorities would prefer to let sleeping dogs lie? I think there's two aspects there. The first one you're referring to there is the, the initiative undertaken by, by Maeve Brady herself. And I think what that reflects, and it's something that Mary Daly has spoken about, her expertise looking at how 1916 was commemorated, is the importance of the initiative coming from below and not being imposed from above. So giving local communities the, the power to... Or it, facilitating them to set the agenda for commemoration, I think, comes across well there. My honest view with the British side of it, the East-West side, is that uh, there is just a lack of understanding in Britain of what happened in Ireland in 1921. Um, in 2016, most British people seem to have woken up on the 24th of June and realised they had a land border with the European Union nation-state. Most people in the in Great Britain do not seem to even recall the fact that the the union was changed in 1921 and the Britain lost a quarter of its land mass. So there's just maybe there's a room there for greater engagement and trying to encourage greater in British engagement with the Irish experience. But I just don't think there's enough of an understanding in Britain itself of what happened in Ireland to go as far as what we're suggesting. Would you agree with that, Alvin? Very, very strongly so. I think, uh, I think Mary is absolutely correct in terms of the, uh, the lack of knowledge of uh, the events in Ireland of the early 1920s uh, and ignorance which has unfortunately resonated, I think, through the decades. Uh, I recall researching a book a number of years ago working uh, in the British uh, 
uh, National Archives at Kew. Uh, I recall a, a letter, I think, from Edward Heath, then British Prime Minister, referring to uh, what he described as the uh, British High Commissioner in Dublin. So this was the British Prime Minister uh, uh, you know, referring to uh, the embassy of his own country as a, as a high commission. Um, and that, I think, uh, though uh, uh, merely one instance, reflects, uh, reflects, I think, some wider issues. There's a tremendous... Um, there's a tremendous self-satisfaction, uh, I think, within um, within Britain, uh, if I may say so, about the historically speaking, this is about the robustness uh, as well as the flexibility of the British Constitution, and I think we've alluded to, to this earlier on. So, 1921 is seen uh, as uh, uh, as not uh, not in the terms that Mary has uh, quite reasonably described, but rather as a great victory for the flexibility of that constitution, uh, and yet further testimony to the ability of the United Kingdom and the British Empire to bring on board former enemies, whether they be South African Boers, as Yunan has said, or indeed delving further into the 19th century. Um, insurgent uh, Quebecois uh, uh, within the Canadian context. Uh, so the Canadian constitutions of 1840 and 1867 are seen again as, as triumphs of imperial statesmanship, just as 1921 is. But isn't it also the case that, listening to all of your contributions today and Professor Horn, that in some senses each of these um, major points in our history is best thought of as as bespoke and as unique, that, that sometimes the, it's not... I mean, partition itself, if one compares the scale of the issue, say, between Ireland and the Indian subcontinent, the scale is so different, the details and the circumstances are so different that they're hard to compare. Alvin? Um, I entirely take the point, and as historians, we fret about these uh, these methodological issues, such as the nature of historical comparison. But uh, while I entirely uh, accept that there are uh, differences in scale, looking at Ireland and and India. Or in in other comparative cases, there may be you know there may be as many distinctions uh, uh, and differences as points of comparison. At the end of the day, um, at the end of the day, many many contemporaries made these interlinkages, and the fact of the matter is that the Irish partition had an influence uh, 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 of sorts uh, uh, in terms of British imperial policy uh, uh, within India. And, uh, you know, the creator of modern Pakistan, Jinnah, for example, uh, was interested in the Irish partition and interested in the arguments over the partition of Ireland and interested in Carson in terms of uh, the, the politics of uh, what was then Britain's Indian Empire and looking ahead to the possibility of a Muslim state. Yeah, but Carson himself, for instance, was dis a disappointed man in his later years because he, he got what he didn't want. Oh, Carson! Uh, uh, absolutely so. Carson, uh, uh, Carson, uh, uh, Carson did not want uh, uh, the 1921 treaty. He didn't actually much want the 1920 Government of Ireland Act, though he went along with it. Uh, 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 Carson, uh, Carson, uh, uh, in his later years, embraced. Uh, 
uh, a full-blooded conservative imperialism, uh, which uh, involved him taking uh, uh, taking very unprogressive stands on, for example, uh, 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 Indian self-rule in the 1930s. But in terms of Ireland, uh, Carson was fundamentally about uh, an integrationist unionism. Uh, it should be said, I think, as well, that uh, to get back to one of the earlier points you were raising, John, um, he was also interested in the possibility of federalism uh, uh, across uh, uh, the islands of Ireland and Britain. Uh, so he saw that as a way of sustaining some form of uh, modified union relationship. Uh, that is to say, Ireland would have a form of self-government, but so too would Scotland and Wales. Uh, and that would be the new nature of union. And he was prepared to buy into that. Yunan, did I see you attempting to come in there? Yunan, oh, uh, sorry, John. No, I was just saying that Jinnah, Jinnah himself is, is the, the analogy is very interesting with Carson, and and in some ways like Carson, Jinnah, Jinnah in the end ended up with with a state, in fact, a state in bizarrely in two parts, separated by a thousand miles, with which you, in a sense, he wasn't really. What Jinnah had been looking for was to defend Muslim interests, either in a, a, an India that remained in a kind of home rule, or in an India where, where politics would be so, the constitution would be so organised that Muslim interests would be protected. And if you think, if you look now at how Pakistan is treated in India in terms of othering as the absolute treated with absolute contempt uh, and referred to with absolute contempt in popular politics, and if you look at how Muslims are, where India's in, the Hindu narrative in India is now about Mughal oppression, the Mughals being the Muslim. Uh, rulers and conquerors of, of much of what we now think of as iconic India, the creators of the Taj Mahal and so on. And Indian nationalists, historians and politicians are busy trying to write the Muslims, either to blame them and or to write them out of uh, India's sort of pre, pre-British colonial history. Well, one man's Thank partition you. is another man's liberation, of course. So that, that President uh, Higgins, can I ask you about this othering point? Are you optimistic that we can go through this decade of centenaries with this more constructive approach that you're hoping for? Or isn't there a lot of room for pessimism as well, that people see the history they want to see and they find that it's further embedded by the experience? I think that there are a couple of things. Uh, very much, I very much agree that there's great significance in the movements from below about people who in fact actually want to repeople these periods themselves. Because for example, I, I quoted the case of Eileen Quinn. Uh, Eileen Quinn's grandson uh, has been to see the relatives of the RIC man in Roscommon, who, which had led, whose uh, death had in fact led to the movement out from Gort towards, uh, uh, towards Lady Gregory's estate where that shooting took, took place. These are all very, very important. And I think it illustrates something else as well, uh, that where there is need for care, and that is, what if we were in fact actually seeking to recover uh, lost opportunities uh, and r missing opportunities rather than in fact investing events? If you, if you decide to load the symbolism on a particular selected event, th there is a risk involved. 
uh, there are opportunities on the, on, in, in the way you do it. I think, for example, the speech of King George, for example, you could see positives in that very much. But also, uh, I think there is a great case for the recovery of the better moments lost. For example, when I was looking at Geoffrey Lewis's Carson, the man, uh, book on Carson, Carson's uh, speech to the Ulster Unionist Colson in Belfast on the 4th of February 1921, where he says, you will be a parliament for the whole community. We used to say that we could not trust an Irish parliament in Dublin to do justice to the Protestant minority. Let us take care that that reproach can no longer be made against your parliament, and from the outset let them see that the Catholic minority have nothing to fear from a Protestant majority. And there is great scope, in my view, of going back uh, to that discourse which you have heard about the treatment of minorities. Because those who, for example, speak of a union, of what union, but then equally those who are speaking of United Ireland, of what kind of United Ireland and so forth, if the discourse can move to the point where we are, after all, in entirely new circumstances, but it is actually wrong to say um, that what we have experienced to be in terms of partition and the consequences of partition was delivered as a neat, finished package. Uh, there were those who, from the very beginning, retained hope, for example, that it would be temporary, which I think you could argue from some of the aspects of the King George V speech. You could also argue in relation to Carson's speech in many cases. Well, We've heard already to, heard about it. intended to be temporary, but of course it, it, it became embedded and, it, it did. and fashioned the two states within Ireland, yes, no, and North that, and South. Uh, yeah. That raises the question, for example, in relation to, I have said it elsewhere, uh, if, if you put yourself... Uh, in, in, in north of the border as it is now, whatever like that, and you, you were seeing, if you like, a new state emerging. Uh, there was a need for uh, an expression of a fundamental commitment uh, in, to issues of conscience. Uh, now, I can't, I don't say that in a very critical way because, after all, Irish nationalism had taken on a particular coloration. Uh, from the, the Catholic emancipation on through the land war and we will have a further seminar dealing with the impact of land and all of this and that when we're looking at the land issue you'll see huge points of commonality between the issues in Ulster and, uh, and, and, and other parts of Ireland and that's about what I think is, here you asked the question about the said I don't represent the state I represent the I the president running seminars, but the, the, it is very, very important. I do t wish very much that everyone would participate with the advisory committee. Uh, it, it, that's so important. It would be very, very, very helpful because it indicates a mind towards which, uh, if you are preparing for the future, you, you must say, well, we don't intend to lock ourselves into the lost opportunities. You could even, I could have equally in the first seminar, uh, speaking about, for example, the 1918 election, a point made in today's paper that a substructure of a state came into existence through the Sinn Féin courts and the gathering of taxes and all of this and of it, you might say that that was a great error too, not be able to respond, to recognise that irrespective of what had happened in 1916, the response to it and then the further increases that took place in the, the, the conscription issue in 18, that at the same time there was this 
impetus that had been there for people to run a state in an orderly way. It's easy to say now that going back, if we could put, that one should have, could have responded differently, saved a great deal of lives and tension. But that's no reason for saying why, for example, in envisaging the future, that you must get to points of original thinking uh, rather than, uh, than, than... And that's the danger. What one has to be careful about the symbolisms. You can, the idea that you would, for example, uh, uh, symbolise something that was presented as a process, but you're going to recall it and commemorate it as a finished event. Uh, that's foolish, in my view, but equally it is equally too foolish to say uh, that to those who rejected that in fact, where in fact a, a form of martyrdom which is the exact same as everything ever since, that's equally fallacious in my view. So that's why I was hope, why I'm hoping to call of my six seminars, and they will be all together, uh, to see it as process, see it as process, very very much so, yeah. and very much I'm open. I have been also as well. Uh, I, I have been contacted by about different. There are ways we can cooperate on all of this. And down through the levels, because one of the things that is in both, but it's missing in the. We have my neck, the, I think that the fourth seminar is on social class. And that is perhaps the most important of all. For example, in relation to the, to the pogroms which were mentioned, I mentioned in my paper that it wasn't only. What about the trade unionists who, uh, who, uh, and the Protestant workers who were equally excluded from the, from the shipyards? And uh, what about, particularly where everyone is using the phrase Bolshevism and so forth? Uh, while there are many people who are entirely critical of what has happened uh, to socialism and communism and it's by what happened much later on, this ease with which you can dismiss the dissenting intelligence about matters economic and social as Bolshevist, that was quite common north and south. And um, the brave people, when I look back on my visits to Northern Ireland long, long, many decades ago, uh, was the great achievement of the trade union movement. And John Horne, the, the 1980, we've heard of the 1918 and, and, and conscription and how important that was, and Eunan mentioned that, but... The 1918 election, of course, was a profoundly important use of the... So as a, as a revolution, it brought a, an amazingly important um, signal to the world and to London that the Westminster election was being used to measure the degree of Irish exactly. self-determination. I mean, I, I, exactly that. And I, I mentioned the, the kind of twin... Tr track approach, if you like, a political movement and, uh, and, uh, and, and a military movement. And what I find fascinating and, and, and impressive is the way in which um, electoral politics were used throughout, were stitched throughout the War of Independence, as, as, as Yunan has um, referred to, but also how, in terms of the gunman and the use of violence, that even within the revolutionary movement, there was that that whole question of civil-military relations, of who was actually in control. Was it Mulcahy? Um, uh, was it the, uh, the Doyle Ministries? Was it the locals? And was it the local Sinn Féin clubs? Was it the local volunteers? There's a, there's, there's, there's a complexity there. And what I'm saying is that I think the way in which that issue itself within the, the, the independence and revolutionary process was dealt with, not just as a question of the constitutionalists versus Sinn Féin, um, helps explain the stability and the, um, uh, 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 and the permanence of democracy in the new state in the South. President Higgins in his address talked, and I, I, was, you know, I, I, I agree absolutely that if empire is diversity, 
um, and, and hierarchy, that one of the things empires also need is, is ideologies, and ideologies um, which explain those hierarchies and which use them and manipulate them. But it does seem to me it's a dialectical process, and certainly in the Irish case, the, the degree to which British parliamentarianism and the assumptions of parliamentary government are there within Sinn Féin itself and within that process that we're well, talking about. And for and that, we, they were indebted to the Irish Parliamentary Party and, and their achievements. And, 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 and for Parnell and, and so many others. And then we're back to the point of, of, yeah. of, of John Bruton's observations about the continued influence of that IPP um, uh, 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 legacy within Ireland. They were um, tenant farmers. There's nothing more conservative than a man with 30 acres. And if he got it from the Irish Parliamentary Party, if that was, then that was embedded also as part of the Irish political culture. And, and, and when we come to it, you'll also see the significant distinction between the grazier class and the, and the different layers of, of landholding beneath them. Uh, I, I, I think in a curious way, the, the historiography has found dealing with social class to be one of its, most, it's, it's one of its most significant omissions. While very welcome to hear the case for people pushing their, their I experience. I should also the add that there were two landslides in 1918 because in those six counties that became Northern Ireland, there were 22, uh, 22 unionists, probably yes. Irish unionists, yes. and, 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 and three Sinn Féin and four. And the constitutional nationalists who were much stronger in the, in, yeah. in the yeah. north than and they, they were, were in the, the south. Yes. But can I just add yeah. to the President's observation that I think that uh, as well as the, um, uh, the, the democratic element and parliamentary element which is stitched through the revolutionary process, we also have the labour movement and what I would call that, that, that process of, of, of civic protest. Yes. The trade unions, for example, not just the strike against conscription in 1918, but of course the ongoing railway strike um, uh, uh, in, in, 1920. In, in, in 1920. Uh, the role, the way in which the Irish Transport and General Workers Union reaches its maximum strength at this stage and yes. in the countryside because it's Absolutely. recruiting it's recruiting the agricultural laborers who are brought into the fold and even though at a political level we know that labor stands back and labor waits it seems to be in a social way during the war of independence labor labor is absolutely one of the participants in that i want to go back to our historians who are remotely joining us on one big issue and many of you have mentioned it ordinary lives uh, too often ignored. Just in the nature of things, commemorations tend to be about big events. Big events are very often spectacular and violent events and great moments. But there's, there's also ordinary lives don't have that moment, if you like, and therefore are not often commemorated. Marie, what's, what's your opinion on all of this and how can it be redressed? I think the ordinary life is what interests people and what it's the hook to get them interested in the wider subject. I'm thinking of Richard Grayson's work on military history from the street, looking at particularly at the nationalists from parts of West Belfast who joined the British Army during the First World War, but also his way of encouraging people to take an ancestor who fought in the war and to, to, to start with the name on the war memorial and to take it from there and maybe find the obituary in the newspaper and work through these sources that way. But the ordinary life is the one that interests most people because we all have an ancestor of some sort. My grandparents got married in November 1921, so I wonder what they must have thought of the, the the way in which the country in which they lived was about to change. 
And it's, it's the end. That's what grabs us. I think if we can look at the ordinary lives, the people we knew, our own ancestors, and take their story, that's the end in understanding the wider picture for many people. Niamh Gallagher, you mentioned this as well, that there, there were too many ordinary lives not being celebrated. Celebra- celebrate is not the word I'm looking up for, commemorate, um, in the way we're approaching the centenaries. Yes, so I think historians tend to be very interested, particularly when it comes to political histories, with, as you mentioned, John, the big histories, big events, parliamentary activities, constitutional questions, um, which are heavily male questions as well at the time. We must recognise that fact. Ordinary histories, I agree with Marie, can be a way into thinking more generally about these big questions, but they can also subvert or challenge these big things as well. So by looking at the agency of what people do, what their attitudes are, what their experiences were, we can actually start to unpick and untangle some of these big concepts. And I think with empire, this is a really good case study of how that can be done. We spent a lot of time talking today, um, understandably so, about violence, about um, imperial forms of repression, all of the really um, horrible stuff of empire that affected so many people across the globe. But Ireland has multiple narratives of its engagement with empire. One huge one was settlement. And, you know, Ireland itself, we all know this, was a country of emigration. And between 1801 and 1921, something like 10 million people left the island. And they went to, as I said in my talk, parts of the empire where they settled, where they retained their Irish identities, which those identities themselves were fairly malleable. And actually, if you look at what an Irish-American describes as Irishness today or an Irish-Australian, you might find that they're quite different. But the fundamental interesting point is that they retained some notion of Irishness, which they saw was capacious enough to link them to these different communities. So I think um, basically untangling these concepts where we look at ordinary people and what they do and what they did can really yield us to opening up to richer histories, really. Yeah. Eunan, on that point? Well, on the same point, President Higgins, I mentioned creameries, and I'm, I'm glad he did, because when I was young, I read about creameries. I paid no heed to it, because I was interested in ambushes and things. And, and the, the, we needed to, to look at, the, through the lives of the wider community, what actually happened at the War of Independence. And it's not just about ambushes and killing. It's about places that appear to be quiet counties, for example, County Leash, where two out of 11 deaths are drunken policemen carrying out robberies at night and so on. And so the terror is felt and the memory of the terror. And we're often accused, I think, in this state of, of overstating the nature of the War of Independence as compared with how uh, the British dealt with, and the Irish perhaps, in British colours dealt with uh, some, uh, trouble in India and elsewhere, like at Amritsar. But but the memory, I mean, the, the cultural memory, the practical, if I just briefly say, my, my County Down grandmother, I asked her in the 1970s what it was like in the War of Independence in County Down, because her house was raided a lot, because her brother was a Republican. And she told me a joke song about a terrible girl called Dora who came along and broke all the plates. So she told me a joke. I only learned recently she told her daughter about a feeling she was 15 and 16 of sexual menace because she was being held up not just by soldiers but by young specials whom she knew because she met them on the road every day. And they were the women in the house because the men cleared out from fear of being arrested. And that, so there's different memories and so on at the, at the, the pro-ordinary 
proletarian level, if you like, which and the more of them I think we understand, the more we'll have a greater understanding of the of the depths of feeling and the resilience of feeling and of memory right across the different communities in Ireland. Thank you. Alvin Jackson, you're nodding to that, yeah. Just in addition uh, uh, to all of this, uh, you know, I'd say that we, uh, and in terms of uh, the individual and the local and the personal, I think you know we really should be celebrating uh, the digitization revolution of the past 20 years and the whole array of very individual and local materials that have been made available. Um, the census records, uh, Union has mentioned, I think, in passing for 1901 and 1911, made available through the National Archives in Dublin, absolutely wonderful and in many ways a wonderfully subversive uh, 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 resource but at but at the personal and familial level i know you know through having trolled my own uh, family's records through it um, that the the kind of the accepted narrative of my own family history uh, just isn't borne out in terms of the documentation and uh, you know, uh, a wonderfully stimulating set of revelations through that material. But there's so much, so much else besides the, the National Archives in Dublin's uh, uh, digitization of the um, first, uh, some First World War records, the the wills uh, left by First World War soldiers. Again, you know, very uh, at one level, very scrappy, uh, very truncated. But my goodness, emotionally charged and wonderfully poignant records of uh, these young soldiers uh, who, for the most part, uh, didn't return uh, from the Western Front. And accessing that sort of material and it being digitally available to the, the entire population turns that, those people into sort of historians, doesn't it? Rather than reading your books. Yes. Yeah. I mean, they can follow uh, on absolutely. and read books, but it gives them that texture and that <laughs> sense of, of finding something, discovery. Absolutely so. Yeah. Um, just on this general, ordinary, the ordinary people in the John Horn, in the, in the records and in the commemoration, are you optimistic that we can get that in and that we can do this, as it were, the bottom-up approach? My first answer is uh, uh, yes, when I look at what happened um, uh, uh, both north and south, I think, in relation to uh, 2016, and particularly the, 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 the area which, uh, which Neve is an expert in, um, the First World War, the experiences of the First World War, I'm really struck by the, um, uh, uh, by the amount of family history interest. This democratization of the archive that we've been talking about, I think, was absolutely crucial in allowing people to, to become interested in their own family and, and community um, stories. And, and I think that um, uh, that was very positive. But, and Union has made this point, I think in a way we were pushing at an open door. Because if we were talking about bringing back into the picture the, let's call it generally, the Catholic nationalist soldier, every side could agree. I mean, it was win-win. Um, and I think that, as we've always recognized, the most difficult period of the decade of of, uh, of, of, of uh, centenaries was going to be these few years. And in that sense, I'm, I'm, I'm less optimistic. I mean, I hope it will happen, but that was why I raised the question about you know, British ignorance, because it is a triangular relationship. It's not just north-south. And I think that also one comes across then um, uh, the, 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 the more ideological 
and, and um, uh, narratives, which both North and South we've had, and the importance of unpicking those. Um, the question, again, I think Neve raised it, of, of the ways in which complex experiences at the time became subsequently simplified in people's own memories because of what they'd learned at primary school, North and South, um, because of simplified family narratives, which then, as it were, fitted the established heroic um, uh, mythifications of history. So actually unpicking those things and finding the framework, finding the space in which one can do that and can allow these more complex issues to emerge, I think is um, not easy. I think there's a huge issue, John, in relation to uh, literature as well, restoring Sean O'Casey's insights to their proper place in the entire canon of it all. It's fascinating that O'Casey has, in fact, all of what we've been discussing, the people who came back maimed from World War I, the, the different views that people held in relation uh, towards the people who had got fragments of, of Marxism and so forth. It's all in O'Casey, but it tells you something to my mind about how that uh, O'Casey has, been, has not been given the attention on the island of Ireland that he has got, for example, in relation to the United States where people were studying the literature of the period. And, and he, it's of enormous significance because you could get locked into the idea of an order lost and great chaos created. Uh, but there's an indulgence in that, to my mind, as a literary bias that uh, I very strongly think that the, the great the great tragedies and the great plays that O'Casey wrote are of immense importance and for example why uh, the rejection even of, of the Silver Tassie they tell us an enormous amount uh, about what were if you like uh, in a way middle class excluding, excluding attitudes in relation to, to just about everything in terms of experience the same thing is true in relation to the histories of sexual experience in literature and that which was attributed as it were to the dangerous lower class, classes and particularly women. So this, there's a great deal to go forward on if, uh, if we were able to bring all these themes from below and gender, well, e- gender in, in, I think. Well, we leave that there and my thanks to, all our thanks indeed to Professor John Horn and to our contributing uh, historians from uh, Edinburgh and Dublin and uh, Cambridge and Belfast. Thank you all and thanks to the President for the initiative indeed. Um, And that concludes our discussion today. I hope that you found it stimulating and thought-provoking. The President is on record as believing that the latter years of the decade of centenaries, encompassing the Civil War and the embedding of partition, will prove among the most challenging of this decade of centenaries. And it is these centenaries indeed which fall next in the calendar. The next seminar in the President's Machnav 100 series will take place in May. It's entitled Recovering Imagined Futures and will consider issues of gender, class, and land. Contributors will include Dr. Margaret O'Callaghan, Dr. Katrina Clear, Professor Linda Connolly, Katrina Crow, Dr. John Cunningham. Please join us then. Further details of how to watch will be available closer to the date on the President's website, president.ie, and on rte.ie. Thank you for joining us at this session, which came to you from the State Dining Room at Oris Anukthron.